Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey friends, this is Andre and this is Tennis and Bagels Podcast. And uh, this is a special episode where Owen got to interview Juan Jose. So we all at Tennis and Bagels Podcast follow on Twitter and enjoy his work. A bit of a content warning is that this episode is much longer than usual, but we decided that the talk was just too good to cut anything out, so we just left it all in. And um, we'll, you'll find timestamps in the description, and um, that'll be it. Thank you so much, Juan Jose, for participating in our podcast, and um, I hope that all of you listeners get to enjoy this as much as Owen did recording it. So, yeah, bye. So, if it's okay, um, would you mind starting with uh, sort of describing your journey through tennis writing? Wow, that I was thinking. I was guessing you were going to ask that, so I was thinking about it. Tennis writing. Tennis writing is not a thing that I set out to do. Um, tennis writing is a thing that happened completely by accident. Um, I was in Argentina. I was living there because I was going to school there. I was going to film school there, and I've always been a huge sports fan, and so basketball, soccer. Uh, and some tennis. I, I remember I have some tennis memories from the 90s when I was a kid. And early 2000s, I kind of didn't really watch much until I went to Argentina because where I lived in Ecuador, I didn't have a TV. And this was pre-broadband internet. So you didn't have a TV. You didn't have television anymore. So I, I remember clearly that um, I missed, uh, what match was it? I mean, they couldn't have been that one. I remember missing a match. Oh, but this was much later because I also didn't have a didn't have access to a TV. I remember wanting to watch the Federer Safin 2005 semifinal and completely messing up the time and schedule and realizing the day after that it all already happened. It was, you know, it was that kind of thing. But back then, early 2000s, I moved to Argentina, and all of a sudden, I live by myself. I go to school. I don't really work. So it was a very, I had a lot of free time and I have a TV and there they love sports. I mean, you know, Argentinians just love all their sports. And I found myself all of a sudden being offered all this tennis and I should say men's tennis because in Latin America, women's tennis just, I don't know how it is now because I've been away for 13 years now, but back then, the, the women's tennis you would get was basically slam quarters onward and maybe something sprinkled in earlier, but that was it. But men's tennis, you got a bunch. And I found myself watching. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And as it happens with, I'm guessing it's the same with you because you're a curious person. And when you're curious and you love something, you're interested in something, you just want to know more. I started to read as much as I could. 
And back then, obviously, it wasn't really a case of finding books. It was the internet. So trying to find wherever I could. Uh, and I remember back then, you know, you go to ESPN for sports, you go to ESPN tennis, you go to Sports Illustrated, and it was John Wertheim. Um, and then I found tennis.com, which I, I did not know about tennis magazine because I had not, I had lived in the US when I was a little kid. So obviously, no idea that existed. And I find tennis.com. And this was the tennis bug really, really hit me 2005. Up to 2004, I, you know, I was aware of what was happening, but I would basically watch the odd match here and there, but that's it. I was a very casual tennis fan. 2005, uh, with the rise of Federer, I was like, well, okay, this is, this is something that I, this is special. This is something that I've, that is un, unlike anything. I remember watching the Miami final against Nadal. I remember watching the, the Fred Jobert final and it was crazy because I actually had friends in Argentina that, that really liked tennis. And for that match against Nadal, I was in a student film shoot in a, not the nicest part of Buenos Aires. And I remember being like, okay, are we done? Are we done? Are we done? Can I go somewhere? And I actually went to a little cafe and, uh, they had it on. So I watched the end of the match in the little cafe. <laughs> I think I was the only person that actually paid attention, but they had it on. Uh, and I watched that match and I was kind of hooked. So I was reading there, uh, the two writers that I remember, obviously Pete Bodo and Steve Tigner. And at the end of that year, <clears throat> it was when at Tennis World, well, which was Pete Bodo's uh, blog within tennis.com, he started enabling comments, which now, you know, someone like you, you, you were born into this reality where everyone can just post their comments online and be whatever. Uh, but back then, it, was, it wasn't a thing. You went to ESPN, you read the article, and that was it. Uh, there was no, really, no real social media back then. It was just very, very one-sided. Um, and all of a sudden, the tennis world, they start putting in allowing comments. So at first, you know, Pete would write something and he would, Pete is so prolific. Uh, I don't know how he does it. He would write multiple times a week and he was very consciously trying to, I think, in start a community. And a few people started popping up. And, you know, I was, I was a kid. I mean, back then I was not much older than you. In 2005, I was 22. And I was, you know, I... I liked how Pete wrote. He was teaching me a lot because he did this cool thing of, because he's been around the game for, for forever, um, he would write about what was happening and then he would write about historical stuff that I wanted to learn that I didn't really know. So I was there and I was reading so much and consuming as much tennis as I could. And I started commenting because I felt like, well, this is, seems like, a, 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 I don't know, I have a thing to say. And I remember the first thing that I start. I think if this was it, I might be wrong, but the, the first time I remember actually engaging and then getting in a back and forth with people who were very angry with me, <laughs> which is, as you know, on Twitter, it's a thing that happens often. Uh, it was because that year, I don't know if you remember, and I don't know if a lot of people remember, because this was 16 years ago. So that was, I think... I don't know if it was the first year or uh, in Shanghai that the Masters Cup was going to be in Shanghai. And this was a year that 
I swear, it seemed like half the field did not did not make it. Like Nadal had his famous uh, foot issue that almost derailed his whole career. Uh, Agassi was, you know, 2005 Agassi. He right. he didn't have. He was breaking down already. I think Roddick uh, backed down too, and Federer actually was hurt. And this was uh, for a long time was probably his one big injury. He had a, um, some issue with his foot because he missed most of the the fall. And he goes, he agrees to go to basically salvage this tournament because no one's going to be there. And I, I'm pretty sure, I might be wrong on this, I'm pretty sure that's the first year where they had that nice, uh, the beautiful stadium in Shanghai. So everyone's panicking. Federer very nicely agrees to go. And, you know, by at this point, 2005, he's taking over the ATP in, in a way that as, as like the face of the ATP. Because... Before that, it was still kind of Agassi. And Federer was not beginning to, he didn't have like, the, because right now people, it's funny to think of people who, I mean, it would be, for you, it was probably very different to come up to what Federer was into this already kind of the image that we have now, like, you know, Rolex and uh, perpetual fancy, excellence and elegance and beauty. Yeah. That was a brand. That was a, that was a brand that, uh, those of us who were following tennis back then, we saw it happen. It was, uh, was actually going back and forth with somebody on on Twitter about this the other day. Um, Federer, when he started, was a pretty DIY operation. It was uh, famously Mirka, who was his girlfriend forever before being his wife. Uh, she was manager, publicist. It was, it was just the two of them. Uh, I think in 2005, I don't think Federer even had a coach. It was a very, very small operation. And I think 2006... And it was at this transition moment that Federer became, uh, he got signed with IMG. So he went big time. And as, as I don't know if your listeners know, but IMG is kind of, it's kind of been the prestige agency for tennis. It's been for a while. Now I, I would argue it's not so much anymore, but back then it was huge. I mean, they, they won the tournament. So anyway, 2005, Federer goes to Shanghai and I'm watching this. <laughs> the thing that got me in trouble was in the semifinal, I'm pretty sure it was the semifinal, Federer plays Gaudium. The guy that I, I think most people don't even remember, even though he did win a slam in the most hilarious way possible. <laughs> that, that comeback and the biggest choke ever, probably. Uh, I remember watching that match. I think it was, fell asleep, came back alive, <laughs> woke up and was like, are they still going? I thought Cody was going to win it easily. It was hilarious. But Gaudium was a, a character and he was the kind of guy, even though he had a beautiful game, he just did not believe that he was any good on anything outside of clay. It was a total in his head. There was nothing in his game, nothing in himself that would have indicated that this is a clay court specialist. Oh, so was this the double bagel then uh, when Federer yes. beat him? Okay. So actually, yes, that was a double bagel. So let's back backtrack. So Federer shows up to this tournament and he's undercooked i mean he hasn't barely had any time to prepare he's just being nice and back then he was just so much better than everybody else that he runs through his group and there was one match in his group i'm pretty sure it was in the group phase against korea where he wins the first at like six one or six nothing and actually i don't know why i'm like we have the internet now back then we did not uh the masters cup 2005 
So it was in the round of, I'm pretty sure it was the round robin. He plays Coria, another Argentinian, in that hilarious year where Coria's, that's basically the end of him. Yeah, he had that wrong uh, final, and then that was sort of that was sort of it, right? And that was, yeah, I think it's it. So yeah, the the people that qualified this is what we we're talking about earlier. The top eight were Federer, Nadal, Roddick, Hewitt, Agassi, Coria, Davidenko, and Lubicic. And out of those, Nadal out, Roddick out, Hewitt out, Safin out. So I was actually incorrect about. Oh no, yeah. Well, and Agassi, I think Agassi showed up and played one match, and somebody else played instead of him. Um, so this was yeah, pretty much a disaster. Let's see the, the whatever thing. So anyway, in this match, the people, this is the start of my tennis writing career. Yeah, there you go. Federer wins the first set against Coria, six love. Not so much because he's playing that well, but because Coria is even. I mean, at that point, he was uh, on the downslope, right? Yeah, and. Coria, even when he was really good on clay, he couldn't beat Federer on clay. So, belief cratered. And the second set, Coria wins 6-1. And I go on Tennis World, and, I, and I'm like, Federer tanked that, match, that set. Because <laughs> he just needed, he needed matches. He needed time. People were very offended that anyone would suggest that uh, Federer would throw a set. It's like, he won anyway. I'm just saying he, he needed the tennis. So anyway, long, long story short, that's how my tennis writing career started. I was writing comments on Tennis World with these group of people, some of which I'm still in touch today. Um, some of you, some of them who you may know, like uh, Matt Zemek was there. He was a... Yeah, I follow him. From, from tennis with an accent he's uh and he's written about tennis uh elsewhere too uh andrew burton who's now doing some stuff with tennis with an accent too i've even played tennis with andrew burton uh and many others um more importantly uh the next year i met my wife through the comment section of tennis world which is just a wild thing um and the next year so i was writing more and more and i was part of this community and i remember the next year Pete was going on vacation and he asked me if I would write something. And I was like, sure. And I think they wanted me to write about the, the young guys of the ATP and trying to see who was going to be the next. I think these must be dead and like lost in the, in the internet. Uh, it was like Djokovic, Murray, Baghdadis. Gasquet, uh, the, the next Gasquet. Federer at that point. Yeah, forget it. it was them, <laughs> and I picked Baghdadis. <laughs> terrible because, you know, Djokovic at that point had broken through, and I was very into Djokovic, and I was, I was just very taken. It was there that I I said this guy is going to be number one. This guy's going to win all four slams, and people thought I was crazy, uh, but yeah, it was in, and I wrote those articles. First time actually dealing with an editor, <laughs> we had a very contentious relationship. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, she wasn't like this wasn't a tennis.com editor. It was somebody from the community who worked as an editor. Um, actually passed away, which is kind of crazy to think about. I mean, this was so long ago. Uh, had all the contentious thing, and the pieces come out because I think it was one on each one. And then Steve Tinder asked me to write. He used to do these back and forth with people during during some tournaments. So we did one uh, about Madrid and that was very different. That was very much 
the the pieces for Pete and also because of the person who was editing. And it was funny, I think both I thought that I was a better writer than I was, and she thought she was a better tennis editor than she was. <laughs> so it was a bad combination. <laughs> and so those I don't I don't think came out super well. They were kind of generic. Uh, the ones from Madrid, I think, were more me just talking like I usually or me just writing like I usually wrote and Steve going back and forth. That was pretty cool. And that's that's pretty much how it started and how it remained. Like nothing. I didn't really pursue it. I didn't think this was a thing that people could do because I was studying film. I had dreams of being a film director and all that. And that was it. So I would, I was still commenting on tennis world. I met my wife. We got married. I moved here and I kept every once in a while commenting. And the, the fun thing about that place is that it wasn't really much of a, like an instant message type of thing. But at the beginning, especially the first year of comments, you would be there not to kind of live tweet like we do today, but at the beginning was more like people would write long pieces, pieces within pieces. Um, and there was people who had seen, you know, labor play or gone to a camp with Ros Roswell or Roswell or something. Um, Stuff like that. It was really, really, really rich, like a fantastic community. And then it started changing, obviously. It became more and more popular. Then people started live tweeting thing, which I did too. And it changed. So I kind of stopped. So then kind of fast forward all the way to 2012. I moved to Texas for my wife's job. And I was doing some writing. I was actually working on a screenplay that got that was going to be filmed so I was doing these edits and Twitter's on and I've been on Twitter at that point for like three years and then in Twitter some of the tennis world people were there and I met new people too so I started talking with um, Lindsay Gibbs and Amy Featheroff uh, Lindsay, who had been at Tennis World too, so I knew her, knew her from then. And then Amy, who we met through Tennis Twitter, and we were like, let's just start a website. And I'm like, cool, I have time. <laughs> I have all the time. I'm, I'm just writing. So the, the plan was for me to write. Let's write about tennis. And Amy was uh, the webmaster, so she created our site, and we kind of came together with a, a, a logo and everything and a look and kind of what we wanted to do. And it started, and it was really, really cool. And I just kind of poured myself into it, into the whole, okay. Because in my mind, I thought, you're going to write about tennis? You're going to watch all the tennis, and you're going to know everything. Because uh, in my mind, I... I couldn't imagine half-assing it. So I was just obsessively watching, planning. I mean, I wouldn't miss uh, a, a final, a master's final. And, you know, coverage here was pretty good. So, and I had tennis TV and whatever, and you, you were able to watch a bunch of it. So I did. And I wrote a lot, <laughs> wrote a lot that year. And by the, we, back then, we were 
two or three years probably short of the big monetizing push of what we have now. And back then we kind of tried to start monetizing and we, we never could get it going. Uh, we almost got bought <laughs> by this thing that never worked, thankfully. Uh, was this guy who owned was it MMA websites or something. And it was kind of shady. It was kind of weird, but <laughs> whatever. We were trying to get it monetized, but you know, we each had our own thing. I was doing some other writing and then uh, Lindsay was really trying to make it work as a writer. And uh, Amy had her own separate normal job. And at one point, I just, I was burned out. I just, I couldn't do it anymore because I think what killed me is that I just got invested in these matches that at the end I didn't really care for. And I ended up doing these live diaries. And those were, I mean, those were hours long commitments of writing all these updates and being on Twitter and all doing all that. And again, setting up your life around tennis, around when X final is, X semifinal is, and I just, I got burned out. So we stopped the changeover. It didn't die. I think uh, Andrew Eccles, who now has his own, I think, Substack or one of those things, I think he, he kind of took my place for a little bit, and I forget exactly how other people uh, showed up, but I was no longer involved. Uh, and that was it. And then the funniest thing happened that after six months, I think, I was watching the that US Open. And when which one was it? The 2014, the one that Chilich won. I'm watching that. And uh, in my DMs pop, pop, pops up this guy who says he's from Rolling Stone. I'm like, really? Like a subscriber. <laughs> what, what's the deal? It's like, are you interested in writing for us? I'm like, what? I thought it was a joke. And hilariously, and I think very smartly from him, because now that, you know, we're a little more aware of how editors work, he gives me the first assignment right about Fetter. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> cool. You're asking me to do this. Fine. Uh, and I did. And we, that I started writing for them and, you know, it was, it paid okay, but you know, it was not much, not that much for a piece, and there weren't that many pieces because they, you know, it's Rolling Stone. They don't really, they're not a tennis publication. They're barely, barely into sports. So obviously, they're not going to care about all about tennis. But you know, for the slams, they, there were a few pieces, and the coolest thing with them was actually writing in, in a, such a big place. But I was uh, my editor, I think, suggested like, oh, you want to do some interviews? I'm like, sure. Uh, and I had no idea how to do that. I didn't go to journalism. I, I never took, I think the only journalism class I took was in high school, one class. Um, and I just, I just did them. I didn't do that many, I think, uh, off the top of my head. The first one I'll never forget was Madison Keys, who I was so big on. And I think at this point, she might win a big one, but I, you know, back then I thought she was going to be the next, next big thing. And we had this like great interview really long interview like kind of spoiled me because most interviews like 10 minutes 15 minutes i think i talked to madison for like an hour and 45 minutes oh my gosh it was very long it was great and i i prepared so much i had so many things to ask her and because you know she was super young back then she agreed and she just we just did it and the piece got 
pretty much edited out of, I think, you know, the, the things that happen in big publications, but, you know, I got a chance to talk to some other people, uh, other people that were interesting. Andy uh, Murray. Yeah. Murray was great. I wish I had an hour and a half with him because I think he did, he it was supposed to be 10 minutes in Miami and we talked for 15 and I think I asked him four questions. <laughs> we just, I, we could just go. Um, that was super fun. Ferrer was actually very hard. And I was so mad because, first of all, I fought for Ferrer. I was like, can we talk about this guy? Like, I think he's pretty good. And I'm like, really? That guy? It's like, yeah, no, he's good. <laughs> and I even, when I was, you know, this finagling of trying to get the interview done, I was like, I'll, I know that he's not that comfortable in English. I'll do it in Spanish. I'll translate it myself. And I did. And he still was not super... He, he just didn't get it. Like he was oh my gosh. He, he was, I think him, I asked a, a ton of questions. I, I asked him all my questions because I was, yeah. I, he, and he would not really engage. He would not give me much of anything. It was, that was, that one was frustrating. That was the, actually the only one that was really frustrating because I, then, um, actually I skipped one beat. One cool thing I got to do with the changeover is the Houston ATP tournament here, you know, when we had the changeover, we we're like, oh, let's use the changeover now that we have some viewership, we have some notoriety. Let's go to tournaments if we can. So um, Lindsay went to DC. Uh, Charleston, and, right? Or, and oh, she yeah. would go to Charleston and she would go to DC. She went to more, way more than I did. I only went to Houston. And I went to Houston and I got to work like my first tournament as press. Uh, and that was great. I, and again, I think I got spoiled because I got... Um, Press at that tournament is handled by Pete Holterman, who's just a wonderful guy. He's just a great guy. He's a most welcoming person you could think of. And the funniest thing was, and this just tells you how good Pete is at his job. Like he gave me the credential. He welcomed me. He was super nice. He was reading everything I wrote. Wow. And I was like, why would you be doing this? You're trying to press this event. This is a little block. <laughs> what, 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 I knew our numbers. They weren't that big. Uh, but he was he was reading them. And, and that was really that was really nice to see that someone like him, who if anyone who's listening to this and doesn't know who Pete Holterman is, if you go back to watch Djokovic coming off the court at Wimbledon and he's coming into the little tunnel before going into the building, He's going to go into the building and Pete Holterman is the one who says, hey, Novak, go talk to Darren Cahill outside. That's Pete. Um, yeah, he's fantastic. And back then, uh, the ATP liaison was uh, Maria Garcia Planas, who I sadly did not see her again because she stopped doing that tournament. Um, but she was, they were both so great. So great. Maria was <laughs> my first interview that I requested because, you, you know, the way it works, you ask for players, and uh, not all players go to press. Uh, if no one requests them, then no, they don't come. Yeah, I, I was actually going to tell you, I um, I got my first credential at the Newport event a few days ago, and I read all your uh, Houston pieces uh, ahead of it. And so, um, so yeah, the the first day, I um, I requested Kevin Anderson, and I was the only one. So um, so I sat there and I asked him three questions, and then they were like, "Okay, Kevin, you can go now." I'm like, "Wait, if I had known I was the only one, I would have asked him like." 15 questions um so that was a good learning experience yes and i think if you read what the stuff that i wrote i think the my first interview if i remember correctly 
the first time I interviewed somebody and that I requested and Maria, Maria was like, really? <laughs> it was Gerald Meltzer, who was Jurgen Meltzer's brother. Right, right, yeah. Who was there randomly. And I think he was kind of like, you want to talk to me? <laughs> and uh, yeah, actually, he gave me like a good five minutes. It was actually pretty interesting. And, uh, and I think it was kind of tough because if I remember correctly, he lost. So he wasn't too happy. Uh, but it was great. I mean, that that first experience was great. I met um, Blair Henley there. And we would, I mean, we hung out every Houston tournament since. We, I would go see her and we still go back and forth on Twitter. You make these relationships that are pretty cool. Um, that tournament was hilarious. My first press conference ever was uh, Monfils. And yeah, that tournament was hilarious. Monfils reminds me of what, still one of the funniest things. And what I remember every single time that people complain about draws being rigged in tennis, <laughs> that I was walking, I think I went to pick up my credential. So the way the tournament works in Houston is main draw starts on Monday. And qualifying is uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's open to the public. And I think I showed up on Sunday and to pick up my credential and was hanging around. And there was nobody there. The matches had ended, I think. And I don't know the layout of the tournament. I have no idea. So I'm just walking around the stadium. I see this little office. And I see three guys. It's uh, Pete. Second one, I don't remember. The third is um, Ali Neely, who used to be a chair umpire and who's now transitioned to being a supervisor. So you see them every, see him every once in a while these days, uh, not on the chair. And uh, they're doing the draw. And at that tournament, the big back then that draw was, I mean, they had big names. They had Blake, James Blake, and Gael Monfils. They ended up and playing right, like pretty early, first round. Yeah, there is no way that tournament wanted that match in the first round because the problem was i don't think anybody any of the either of them was seated so they couldn't wait until like wednesday when a seed would play they had to play first round and i was just laughing and they were laughing and then people was like what are you doing here i was like i don't know <laughs> i don't even know what i was looking for uh and yeah the, my first presser was actually after that match which monfis won it was a great match. Um, it was pretty fun. And the press room back then, because I think they were, I don't know what they were doing, but the press room was tiny. It was, uh, it was tiny. And because it was, um, I mean, it was weird for a 250, right? Like a Monday night, it was packed. Lots of press because of the names. So the press room, you know, and I feel like I'm the lowest of the low, lowest totem pole, uh, totem pole. And I'm there. <laughs> and Monfils comes and he sits in a chair. There's no table. He just sits in a chair. And uh, I'm sitting on the floor by his knee. That's where I am listening to Guy Monfils. And I'm like, wow, this is wild. Um, so it was great. And yeah, so that did that for the changeover. Uh, and then the Rolling Stone thing kind of happened and talked to people. And then while I was doing the Rolling Stone thing, I was... I started doing a different job and kind of a, a job that paid a little more. So I knew that I should have probably started diversifying to other publications, started pitching, but I've always been terrible at pitching. So I was like, wow, this is not working. I think I tried pitching stuff a couple of times and 
didn't even get a reply, so I thought, screw that. So what ended up happening with Rolling Stone, we were doing well. Like the editor would tell me, yeah, the bosses are pretty happy with our numbers. The test stuff does great. Fantastic. He um, moved from New York to California, and he thought he was going to be able to do his job remotely, which is sounds pretty normal these days with the pandemic. Yeah. Zoom probably like, not a thing back then. But No, no. I mean, it was rare, and they didn't let him. So he has, uh, he probably should have checked before and try to finagle that, but he moved. He was, I think, moving in with his, moving because of his girlfriend or something, and um, they let him go. So they bring in a new editor in, and they make an introduction. We go back and forth on, on over email. He asked me for some pitches. I gave him some pitches. He rejects them all, and that was it. That's basically it. <laughs> Never wrote for Rolling Stone again. Oh, and God. and then I saw that they had other people writing about tennis. I'm like, oh, and in a way that was very different to what I had been doing. Because the cool thing about the editor, which I should name him, his name is James Montgomery. I have no idea what he's doing these days. Um, he would just let me, aside from that Madison Keys piece, which I understand why he kind of wanted to make it a more uh, digestible piece and a more not so tennis focused he would just let me be i mean he i remember writing about a, a Djokovic murray match which you know no one likes and 2014 us open yeah yes. um yeah i remember you wrote um there was one set that was really good and so you wrote about that and then at the end you said like um the rest is probably just best forgotten and i thought that was quite funny <laughs> he, would, he would let me write about those things and you know sometimes you just have luck and and get to work with people like that and yeah he would barely edit my stuff it was just it was nice it was really nice um but yeah it ended and after that ended i was like okay that's it and then every once in a while if i if something just gives me makes me want to write then i will write it and publish it you know these days it's not hard to self-publish whatever so or i just make a long long ass tweet thread and I have just... bookmarked like dozens of those that you've done. There are way too many. There are way too many, and I just get carried away. I've forgotten most of them, but I, I think um that that U.S. Open one, the third set. I think you had actually done that one before. Um, but I wanted to see what you said, <laughs> so I just let you carry on with it when I was following it. Hey, if if you find it, let me know because it, it it's always fun to see how things change. I mean, how your perspective changes. Like I, yeah. I think. What struck me the most about rewatching that one this time was something I wrote at the end. It's like these guys, both of them, are so much better now than they were back then. Like that—that that shocked me, to be honest, because they had their young legs back then. Yeah, and they look so young, and you could see now. And and I, after I finished that, I watched the highlights of the of the French Open one that they just played, of the whole match. I'm like, yeah, these guys are. In 2011, they were still so unpolished and th their tennis is so much richer now they understand everything so well they do everything in such a more streamlined way it's kind of, it's really like you say it's it's kind of shocking that they are because especially back then i mean turning 11 Djokovic, you think about like whoa uh, he had to be amazing I mean, he was 64 and two or something like that and you look at him and you're like 
actually, there's a lot of stuff that he does so much better now. Like every, he does everything a little better now, which is amazing. Um, Even the forehands, do you think? Because I remember from the 2011 clips of him, I just remember it being totally vicious that year. I think the forehand, I think what he's done with the forehand is that there's less variation in the sense that there have been times, because I was watching also uh, stuff from like 2007, there were times where he would overspin that forehand and it would land short and it would get him a lot of trouble because it didn't have pace and didn't really have a lot of spin and it would just get killed. And I feel like when these days, even when he hits a short one, it has more of an action. It has more of a purpose than it did back then. Because then when, when he can flatten it or hit a belter, he, that's kind of the same. But I feel like his forehand just has a more of a, his whole game has more of a pop these days. And I think, you know, it's not only getting stronger because that's a, that, the thing that really surprised me this time is just watching that third set in the, at the US Open 2011. Djokovic is gassed. He is, at the beginning of the set, he is gassed. And you could sense that they're just not, he was not still, he was still not physically ready to, to deal with what he had just done and with the kind of run at the US Open that he had had. And you watch that match, actually, one thing I've, I should have tweeted and I didn't because I was thinking about it is a lot of their points uh, for both of them they kind of go for longer than they should. And that kind of leads into the Australian Open the next year, which is like the, the nadir of this, where they're just, it's just a war of attrition, complete attrition. But they're not attacking as much. They attack more these days. They both do. Because what Nadal realized in that third set is that he just he can't just rally with Djokovic. Yeah, because like, he gets killed on both patterns cross court. Yeah, yeah. He, he has to attack. And when he unleashes that forehand that leads him to win the set, that's what makes the change in him. And that's what leads him to kind of revert back to winning again. Because mm-hmm. um, he knows. And now you see them when they play. They both know. Not all more than any, anybody that he just can't afford to play anything other than a foot within the line. Yeah. And that is, they don't do that in that US Open that much. So it's funny, they're, they're both kind of inefficient. Djokovic, which always gets called the most efficient, whatever, he wasn't super efficient back then. Now he is as efficient as he's ever been. And it's just crazy. Because <laughs> yeah. he's 34. Uh, it shouldn't be. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying about him being gassed at the 2011 US Open, I mean, for both of them, one of my biggest questions is, what did they do physically to get ready for that next Australian Open? Because that was, as I remember, like way more physical, and they they were just playing so well right to the end of that. I mean, the match as a whole was maybe not an epic, but Nadal had like four hours in the quarters, four hours in the semis, and then Djokovic had like five hours in the semis, and then almost six in the final. And like, I just can't believe they did that. It's one That's of the most insane youth. things. Yeah. Because youth, they, they can recover. Yeah, because that I always forget about that. That's one match that I watched live, and I have barely any memory. The the five-setter against Murray in the semifinals from Djokovic, don't remember it at all. It, it's definitely worth a rewatch. The third and the fifth sets it, were It's probably really fantastic. good. Yeah. It's probably really good, but, uh, you know, there have been so many matches. The, the one I remember was 
even the the final, and I watched it live. And I think I rewatched it again, and it was, yeah, it was kind of like that. 2011 US Open, but just taken to the extreme over five sets. And that's why it took so long. I mean, that US Open match, they're starting the third set and they've played for over two hours. Yeah. It's, they've been, and it's two and four. It's not like they played two tiebreakers. It's two and four. So, and yeah, they're both slow. But if you watch that match, I didn't get a sense that they were taking longer between points. It was just, they were killing each other. And I think they both came out of that. Because I think the US, the Australian Open the next year was the last time that they just killed each other. I mean, you could the say matches were definitely different after they, that. Yeah, yeah, but something had to give, and I think what happened was they both realized this is this is not working for even the person who wins it. So let's just let's just streamline things, and I think that's why you get that 2018 Wimbledon match, which is the their best i i still think it's their best it, it's by far it's not it's not close yeah it's it's incredible it's incredible from the moment it starts and it's incredible that they did it in two separate sessions which you know no one would have blamed them if i don't know then the second day sucks or even the first day sucks because they had such a constraint and it was so good and the the french open one i mean they had the third set which was great i would argue that the start of the second is the second is is decent the third i thought the just, end of the second was great yeah yeah, because that's when it starts. I think I, I remember tweeting that the match was getting played on Djokovic's terms. Like yeah, this, this is this feels different because people talk about the 2013 match, the one that uh, was a semi that I think in everyone's minds was a final because it was the other semi was Sanga Ferrer. Right, that person was not winning the French Open, and the 2013 match, even when Djokovic was up a break in the fifth, I was like. He's not playing well enough to win this. He's not convincing me that he's going to win this. And he didn't end up winning it. I didn't think they all played that well either in that one. And it was tough and it was a war, but I don't know. There's something about that match that I never, never resonated with me a whole lot. Um, but this French Open and that second set, I was like, this, this is different. I had never seen Djokovic play. I had seen him play against Nadal and play like that but not, never at the French Open. Mm-hmm. And that's when it started to change. So yeah, there you go. Long story short, that's that's my tennis writing career. From, from comments to articles to more articles to tweets, basically. I mean, no, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> it needs to be put in a book somewhere um, so that everyone can read it. Um, no, I mean, thank you for going through all that, I guess. I guess my next question is, and keep in mind that this is from the perspective of someone who loves everything you've written and would kill to read more of it. Um, do, do you ever miss tennis writing much in the article form? Uh, I do. I do. I, I have a bunch of ideas for kind of extemporaneous pieces that at some point in my life I will write. Um, I miss the thrill, the thrill of, especially at Rolling Stone, of submitting and then seeing it on the on the dot com uh, homepage being, and being just and the funny thing is about Rolling Stone <laughs> I still remember Jeannie I wrote I didn't talk to Jeannie Bouchard but I wrote about her. I was so wrong because my whole piece is about how yeah Jeannie's gonna be, be able to do this forever. She's gonna be great. She's gonna be elite for a while. She was never again elite. <laughs> she was gone. 
uh, and you know, you have your misses. Thinking that one, um, I think I made a con just one of those comments that you make in a piece that you didn't even think too much about. But I think Jeannie had just started uh, working with a coach that I had never heard of before. And the coach's mom <laughs> got on the comments and was complaining <laughs> the lack of respect. I was like, oh God. I mean, these are the things that happen in, in the yeah. website that big. So, I mean, I, I miss I miss that. Um, I miss the, the feeling of, and this happened at the changeover too, that it was cool to have an idea write it and then finish it put it out get feedback and move on to something else because one thing i didn't mention is that even though i did not want to be a tennis writer growing up um i wanted to be a writer i thought of myself as a writer for a long time um i still don't know if that is the case but my idea was to write novels and things so when i started writing about tennis it was such a, a change because even when I would write a short story, you know, it would be a long process and then finish it and who the heck is going to read it. Whereas with tennis, for the first time I got this, this amplified, because I started getting it actually on Tennis World because like I was telling you at the beginning, it wasn't really so much a, a chat or a, a Reddit even. It was more, I write this thoughtful thing about something and then someone writes a thoughtful reply. And then someone else comes in and writes another thoughtful reply. And they were just meaty things. So I think the genesis of trying to come up with things to say about tennis was there in this forum that doesn't exist anymore because that, that's gone. I mean, the comment sections are completely different animal these days. You got social media, which is its own disaster. That initial tennis world thing, you would have loved it. I mean, someone like you who's so curious and reading so much and wanting to learn, because you were, you're now where I was back then, like trying to, just trying to absorb as much of, of possible because I felt like I was behind, so I needed to learn. Yeah, sometimes I think I was born too late uh, because I missed that wave completely. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, man. I mean. 19 years. I mean, you're 19. So you're, you were born what? 2001. 2001. Yeah. You're, you are, your life is the, the, the holy triad era. Like that's been it, but who knows what you, you get your prime writing years are sadly going to be what comes afterwards. So, right. I mean, I, I can't wait to write uh, glorious articles about, um, I don't know uh, who's a who's a next gen who's not been particularly inspiring yet. Uh, I mean, Alex Demonor winning majors. Uh, it, it, it'll be great. <laughs> not that I think that's going to happen. I don't. But yeah. uh, a what a guy. I, I'm still. He's one of those people that I have in like a, in the bin of. Are they good or not? I mean, I, 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 I think know. I think his issue was like he's six feet tall, but he plays like he's five feet tall because he's not built enough and he just doesn't have the power, so he can run however fast and he's just never going to be able to win efficiently it seems like it he seems like a, a way worse version of ferrer like yeah uh, that, that's a good comparison because he because sometimes i see highlights of him doing incredible stuff and especially athletic stuff i'm thinking wow this guy and i've seen him play a few times there's something there and then i see that he loses in the first round like everywhere and i'm confused but yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, it, 
it's been a pretty crazy ride. I think the, the, the writing bug gets fulfilled by Twitter. Um, I'm very okay with sitting like the other day and watching the match and tweeting about it. And I just put it out and whoever reads it, reads it and whoever reads it doesn't read it, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, I would say that's where I am with whether I miss it or not. What I don't miss, and I will tell you this happily, I don't miss tracking the sport 24-7 everywhere. Like, I check scores, but that's it. <laughs> I check scores, maybe some highlights if there's something on, on tennis Twitter. Like, that's it. And I don't, I don't have tennis channel anymore. I don't have a tennis TV anymore. So basically, I've become a casual slams fan, basically, these days. And it's, you know, transition of what, um, you know, the, the, the three guys, what they did for the tour with the Masters 1000s, because they really built those up. Because it's, and I've always liked them. And I thought that they were kind of underappreciated. They did such a good job of building those out and putting, just showing up. Because that was their problem before. People wouldn't show up. And the whole reason they exist is because tennis tournaments won some guarantees that top guys are going to show up so they can sell tickets. So I've always been in favor of the Masters 1000s, the, the, the Super 9, the Masters Series, uh, the Masters 1000, whatever the heck they, they get called. Well, they didn't change. They used to change the name every 10 years, and they didn't, they didn't this time. So maybe, maybe they'll stick with this, which is good. Um, I still want them to bring back, maybe when uh, Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal retire, they'll bring back the tradition. I don't know if you've noticed uh, in old videos. Maybe they because they, they don't do this anymore. They used to have in front of a, each bench the name of the player. And in that little plaque, they would have the shields because they used to be Masters Series shields. Because okay. uh, say you won Indian Wells, you'd get that stupid whale that they gave <laughs> because of the sponsor. And then you'd get this crystal shield, the Master Series shield. So they would put the shields on the tournament on the on your on your board, and the only one that was awkward for a while was Agassi because he had seventeen. Well, when Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer started winning them, it just became preposterous. So they just got rid of them. And they st- first <laughs> they stopped awesome. putting. They started putting the shields. Well, they got rid of. I think with the rebrand, they got rid of the shields, and and they you wouldn't get the the glass trophy anymore. And some tournaments were hilarious because they were cheap and they wouldn't even give their own trophy. They would just give them the shield. Think like Paris and Madrid, the, the stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, they stopped. But that was, I mean, that was a, a neat thing that they did. But yeah, I don't, those tournaments now I think are pretty much all on tennis channel now. No? Yeah. And yeah. now, be, you know, Djokovic, Nadal and Federer, they don't, they have all the exemptions. So basically they can play whichever ones they want. And I mean, Djokovic has played only the clay ones. And yeah, I don't, I, I watch so much less. And I wish I could watch more women's tennis, but that's even that one you need tennis channel for. Because mm-hmm. they have right now the, the group of exciting young players. And yeah, but the, then it's a golden era right now where it will be in a couple of years with, um, with Osaka and Sviantec. And hopefully, yeah. because the WTA has a, the worst luck. They always get the players that retire in their 20s. They get injured. They get all the bad luck. And this one, they're having some bad luck already. Like 
my favorite of all of them is Andrescu. She's barely played. Yeah. Since, since she won me over, she's barely showed up. She's been hurt the whole time. So, you know, it's that thing. I don't, I don't miss, I don't miss scheduling my life around tennis because it's such a brutal. And I, every time I talk to about this with other people, I tell them tennis is just the worst sport to cover. It, it never it stops. Is. Yeah. And, I, and it asks, if I would do it over again, I would set the coverage to be narrower, to focus on not everything. You Even back then, I was like, okay, challengers, I'm not paying attention to. Like, I, I just don't have the bandwidth to do this. And there are some people on Twitter who do. Tennis hipsters, yeah. They're, they're yeah, tennis hip, they've been, they've always been around. So I would even narrow it even more i was thinking that a good idea would be to do just the masters the masters of series but what kind of website is that that only exists for nine weeks a year or something like right. that so i don't know and, and we you know we did the podcast there that i really enjoyed and uh we did it with uh with brody it was really cool he had the mind the racket blog and he's canadian I, another good twitter friend good tennis twitter friend uh, and that was fun, but that was also ahead of before podcasts were what they are now. But like, it was blowing me away that uh, I've just recently discovered the the tennis podcast, and it's I love it, and it just blows me away that they're doing their fundraising, and for this year they got over a hundred thousand pounds. Like that, it's insane. Yeah, that's wild. It's completely deserved, but it's wild because back then we couldn't make. I could tell you, I, I don't know that the changeover made more than, I don't know, 300 bucks or something like that. I mean, we got nothing out of that. We got exposure. We, Which, you know, there's all these stories of sports writing in the U.S. about how young people like you have to do it for exposure. But, they, you know, you end up doing it for, like, big sites that make money. They're assholes and they don't pay you. Uh, it, Though I am very happy that at least we built our thing and we didn't make any money out of it, but we gave ourselves exposure. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say it is a hell of a relic. Like you might not be able to cover everything for a while, but like you guys did it for a year and you just put out like all of 2013. Oh my gosh. Like, I mean, you alone have 20 pages of stuff with like 10 articles on each page. And um, and I've gone back and looked at it so many times and I still haven't seen everything. Like I... um. So I think in March, I was I was reading stuff on your Medium page, and I was thinking, like, you know, this is great. I wish there were more of it. And then I see in your bio, like, co-founder of The Changeover. So I'm like, okay, The Changeover, let's go to that. And um, and so I pull it up, and it's pages 1 to 120. And so I'm like, okay, no Juan Jose there. I'll go to 1. And then I see, like, your stuff. And I'm like, there's just so much here. It was insane. And um, and your first article, which I thought was great, was... um a rant at the WTA because they screwed up their scheduling for the year end championships and, um, and they bungled oh, yeah. it so that like everyone in the one group had to play on back to back days. And you were like, I mean, it's inevitable that your semifinals are going to be awful because like these players are going to be gassed and these ones have had a rest. And then you kept updating it with like the six, one, six, two and the six, two, six, four and like the player saying they needed rest. And, um, and like, it was brutal because like you you just ripped into them, but like, it was all true. And, uh, and I just thought that was great. Well, thank you. I, I mean, that was the cool thing about doing our own thing that, 
you know, we weren't answering to anybody. And we approached it and felt like we were very influenced, or I was at least, about kind of like the dead spin thing. Like we have no access. We're just here and we're going to say what we, you know, it was that whole thing that was happening in, in other sports and started even earlier in other sports where people who didn't feel represented by traditional media had access to their own and started saying mm -hmm. stuff and publishing stuff that would never, ever get published on like ESPN.com or anything right. like that. Um, or even like a specialized outlet like tennis.com because 2013 at least was when, you know, social media was, was really starting to blossom and you started having the gifts and all that, that fun thing that really fun thing that now is like common, but back then it was starting. And Linz was, I mean, Linz and Amy were fantastic about this. They, I, I remember gave, their GIF articles. Those were awesome. They were awesome. I think both of them learned, gave themselves, they taught each other themselves how to do this. I never learned. I wish I had, because uh, now I see uh, Matthew Willis, who does such good job, such an amazing job with what he writes about, tactics and hardcore and he puts the clip there and it reminds me of what i see in, in basketball like people like zach low that, that's what i kind of wanted to do sometimes and i did all sorts of random things um which is what i i think i even wrote some like music reviews on the team show, which yeah, is the, yeah. <laughs> the most random thing in the world but like i know you can't even there's not even a link to the like I'm on the about page. Oh no, there's the bio. There we go. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote. I wrote so much stuff. I mean, you can see how much I did it, uh, how much I did, and it was just too much. I burned myself out, and I really think what really, 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 really killed me was um, those live live blogs and who uh, Courtney Wynn who's you know also she was also on Tennis World then Twitter friend and you know now works for WTA um, she still does it and every time she does it I'm like wow she's amazing I don't know how you can do this because there's so many matches that are terrible yeah. <laughs> like sitting there yeah, having to watch this whereas any normal person would be like well whatever just turn it off and go do something else yeah. <laughs> um, I, I remember like a bunch of the ones you did were epics and you would usually do like a really long like final thoughts thing and then i remember in uh the 2014 australian open you live vlogged the federer nadal and it was awful and at the end you just wrote like um like federer goes along with the forehand and this is mercifully over and that was just the end of the post and and yeah i mean i can't blame you i've done um i've done a couple for my blog and like they're exhausting even even the they great even matches get the views. Like, yeah i, I know I, I did um I, I did a, a djokovic medvedev one at the atp cup they played this insane match in um in 2020 there and so I live vlogged that one and that was enjoyable just because the match was so good. But like I finished and like I have to pee. I've like sweat through my shirt. It's exhausting. And and I mean, yeah, you were you're like obviously a much better writer than me. You did like do dozens of them. So if it burned you out, I think anyone else besides Courtney doesn't have a lot of hope. So Yeah, I would say, yeah, my lesson to you, my if I'm going to give you a lesson or a piece of advice, don't do those. They're they're not worth it. Just do it on Twitter. Who cares? Tweet whatever you want. <laughs> I'll be fine. Uh, no one's going to look back at the, the piece. The, no. Um, 
Chang looking back at these things. Oh, Hyung Chung. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that 2018 Australian Open was so incredible. I, I remember watching him beat Djokovic. I'm like, this guy is the next thing. Like, he's so cool. And then he just went away. Oh, you, you don't know. In Houston, I was like having these. Uh, you took photos of him and uh, like his, his forehand and service motion. And yeah. Which he changed. And he kept, I don't know, I don't know if he's still playing. He's had, is another guy who's had so much bad luck and he also had to do some like uh, military service, weird shit that happens in Korean that we don't really understand all that well over here. But yeah, but with Chung, I remember, and you know, this is kind of a thing that sometimes you will be wrong, sometimes you'll be right. But I think it's always useful to don't be afraid to follow your instincts because Chung when he showed up in Houston back then, he played qualies. And I was like, wow, this, this kid's something special. And I kept talking about him and everybody was like, really, that guy? <laughs> I was like, no, yeah, I, I think there's something there. Uh, I asked to interview him. Like, I remember Blair and I were like the only two people who gave a crap about this, <laughs> this random kid who uh, no one knew a whole lot about and didn't really speak English that well. Uh, but I just thought it was fascinating. And then the other one, you know, most famously that crashed and burned was uh, Janovic, who I thought yeah. it was going to be amazing. <laughs> I mean, you know, in both cases, I think injuries really did not help. But I remember, I'll never forget how this Polish uh, website was like, this person says that Janovic is going to win Wimbledon. <laughs> I was convinced. And when people made fun of me, I was like, he was in the semifinals against Andy Murray. Once he was up all, a break up in a break. the thirds. Yeah. He was up a break. He wasn't that far away, and Murray ended up winning the tournament. So you know, he was he was he was so good. But not only did he does he not have knees, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just he's a guy who. I he was not destined to be a tennis player. I don't think he. I don't think he understood the game a whole lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, and especially he thought he was already amazing, and and he was. You know. I, I remember you writing. He said um, he didn't have to practice as hard as Nadal, and yeah, and you found a, that quite funny. Yeah, that was, I mean, talk about red, that's a red flag the size of like the big ones that they put here in Texas on the <laughs> car dealerships, like the giant American flags. That was a giant red flag. It's like this guy thinks that okay, he's he's gonna go far, and he didn't. And well, then he got hurt, but he was having all sorts of issues beforehand. You know, sometimes you go wrong, but yeah. like. I Madison Keys, I was so with Madison, I was a little late too, but I was just so taken. I thought, I mean, she has so much easy power, but she's in a way, she's work ethic is not her problem. There's just a fundamental with her. I, I keep back, keep thinking back to this story that she told me. And I don't think she had told this story before about how she learned how to play tennis. And I think it was her grandparents. She would go over when she was a little kid. But instead of hitting the tennis ball with her racket on a court, she would go to this uh, kind of yard, big yard, and just smack the ball as hard as possible. (laughs) So I think I see Madison Keys struggling. I'm like, yeah. Might be a problem with the software then. Yeah, the instincts are just. I don't know if she would do these things. She would go, the queen, the queen. No one else in history would go for backhands down the line 
that she has no business even attempting. When it's her worst shot, she was at a worst time, wrong time with a p- bad p- position on the court, worst time in the point, and it's her worst shot. Shockingly, she missed. <laughs> and it would happen over and over again. She's a wonderful person. Like She could not have been more pleasant talking to. Um, I do think, I mean, she's so young. How young is Madison? She's what, 25, 26 at most. There's open finalists. She's 26. She could. She's got time. Yeah. Paula Chilich. (laughs) Chilich is another guy uh, that I, when I first saw him play, I was like, this guy's the second coming. (laughs) (laughs) I think I put it on the changeover that I sent an email to to Pete Poto and Steve, neither of which replied. (laughs) (laughs) Probably thought it was fucking crazy. Uh, Thinking this, I've seen the future. It's Marin Chilich. (laughs) And well, you know, ended up winning a, a slam champion, Masters 1000 winner, but oh my God, just so much less than what I thought. And not because of the game either, just uh, he's he's another one of those poster kids that we don't really, I guess we do have one with uh, Zverev these days, just really tall guys who move well, but not that well, and who play, there's like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, 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 and they play like they're six one. Like you're you're a big person. Can't catch up. Just play big. Play big all the time. And they didn't. Burdage is, I think, the more tragic of those because he was the worst mover than Chillage and had more power than Chillage off both wings. And it just it never happened. I, I remember you like lamenting that he like couldn't not only couldn't figure out Djokovic, but like seemingly wasn't even trying and uh like couldn't read his serve like back in twenty thirteen and that that head to head is just dismal. Oh it was well and the one time I mean Bird has beat him what once? Uh, three times. He's three and twenty five. Yeah and I think the last one was at Wimbledon twenty ten. I think afterwards he yeah. just went on like an epic losing streak. Nah he I mean Djokovic figured him out so quickly and dramatically for him it's just bad but yeah. you know it's that's the the fun about tennis and i think that's it can still go wrong like i i still the felix thing just hurts me because i was so into so into that guy and now i don't i have no idea like i don't i don't know if tony i don't think Tony, as wonderful uh, as a tennis mind as he is, I don't think this pseudo consulting part-time thing is necessarily going to work. I, Possible I that he also just needs like prodigious talent to work with. Yes. I mean, he, uh, to his credit, Tony always said this. Tony said that the most important thing, because you know people always try to make weird narrative though about Nadal about how it's like he's a hard worker he works so hard he grinds like I don't know he's one of the most talented ever but he's not a untalented grinder he's amazing and Tony always said that no 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 you you can have all the work ethic you can have all the fighting spirit you want you have no talent you have no chance he was always very clear about that and Felix has talent but I th- what is missing from him, I don't know if it's going to be that he needs to endure like a lot more trauma. 
just kind of <laughs> saying something for someone who's had such a dismal record in finals, but they've all been small. So I'm sure they hurt. But how broken up can you really be about losing a, a 500 final? Yeah. Or even a 500 final. Like, no, no, no. You're broken up when you blow a US Open final. Right. That's what hurts. Um, or a Masters final. I mean, that one hurts. Yeah. Um, no one's going to freaking remember any of those finals that feel it. Who even watched them? I mean, I, yeah, like, I, I think people see 0 and 7, but they don't think of any of the particular ones just because nothing sticks out. They've all been straights, relatively unimportant to in, not great players either. And then also in very random places and in random places, random times of the year. Like, it, this is not like, yeah, that's why I, I actually, this is why it's nice to have conversations because you think about things that you wouldn't necessarily. Because I, I hadn't thought about this yet but like his finals are one uh, was to dan evans i know that and it was like two and four i don't remember where though uh that was the murray river open so here are his finals yeah, in like never order. never heard of it rio de janeiro no one watches that no one gives a crap sorry leon no one gives a crap stuttgart on grass maybe some people give a crap Rotterdam, Rotterdam is a historic tournament, but it's a tennis hipster tournament. I mean, you ask people who watch the slams if they even know that there's a tournament in Rotterdam, they wouldn't tell you anything. What is it? I know what it is. I remember people who have watched Rotterdam usually has really good fields. It's a good tournament. But for people who follow tennis, then he has Marseille, Cologne 1, Murray River Open, and Stuttgart again. None of those hurt that much. Because those are the ones you should win. But when you win, it's not like you did something incredible. It's just the relief right. that you won. Yeah, you like, like with, with Andrei Rublev, I, this is one of the reasons why I'm not as bullish on him as a lot of people seem to be, because he hasn't won anything big. Like, he wins these 500s and he wins them consistently. But, yeah. like, who is he really beating? And and then, like, he's made three major quarterfinals and he's lost in straight sets in all of them. Like, that, that is where I think a player, like, starts to make a career, not at a 500. You know, with Rublev, I've had as, as much of an open mind as anybody can have. And I'm, I'm the same boat as you are. I, I don't, uh, he is the one actually who reminds me a lot about Ferrer because his forehand, <laughs> his forehand, I mean, it's not as, as crazy as the Jack Sock thing in terms of this forehand is really not that good and you people are making it seem like it's Fernando Gonzalez or something. But his forehand's not that great. It doesn't do as much as people think it does. And he fights. He plays very... He does. He rarely beats himself. He really reminds me of Ferrer a lot. So he's a guy that a more talented person is going to figure out. And then it's really hard to win the big tournaments like that. I mean, Ferrer grinded so much. And what he got out of it was one Masters title when a lot of people did not show up. And an inch away from another that the one against Th- that challenge on the on the match point yeah oh my god and people were, were attacking him and I was like what come else on what gonna do I, I mean <laughs> your head is probably spinning at that point as well just like hoping and yeah it just it wasn't this much yeah. and that those are the margins for players like that but I thought Felix was going to be different I thought Felix was going to be special and right now I don't I don't see a special player I, I, I see 
a, a, a guy who's in the top 20, which is exactly where he is. And I don't know. I don't know what's... Actually, at some point, I'll, I'll put that on Twitter. Because I never really thought about... It. Yeah, I mean, he's 0-7, but I'm sure he's embarrassed by it. But is that a thing that... I mean... I think it's more just symbolic to get the first one than the title itself actually mattering. Yeah, because all the great ones, it's rare when when someone wins a big one as their first title. They all mm-hmm. win like really random crappy ones. Like even Federer and Nadal Djokovic, like Djokovic, I watched the first tournament he won. So the tournament doesn't even exist anymore. I think it's a challenger now um, in, in the Netherlands. They give him a freaking iPod as a title, as a trophy. That, that's hilarious. It was an iPod and some flowers. That's what he and he lost the iPod. Oh no! <laughs> doesn't even get it. It was one of those big iPod classics that they engraved. I was like, wow, they engraved. It. <laughs> so, did it work or like? I don't know. I mean, this was 2006. It was, and it was again a tournament that no one, few people were watching. I still marvel that this thing was on TV in Argentina, and I think it was because I think um, Korea played. I think Djokovic had to play Korea, and uh, Masu played. I think he, I think he beat Korea in the semis and Masu in the final. So there was interest for Latin Americans, and also because in Argentina they would show any clay tournament that they could possibly can because they loved it. Um, but that's why I watched. That's why I saw. And yeah, I mean it's a shitty tournament. No one cares. I, I was going it. to say, like I, I can tell you, he won Miami in two thousand seven. I could not tell you the first thing he won, like for my life. No, the, the first few that he won were pretty crappy. I mean, if it was uh, that one, the next week he makes a final in Umag and retires against Stan in the first set. They played a battle of a first set, and Djokovic just had no gas. He was just a kid playing two straight weeks on clay. Um, it, it looked like he was going to faint, honestly. <laughs> he was kind of wobbling, and that was it. And I think he then won... Um, it's, I think he won, not Auckland, one of those, 250s, you know, one 250s, and then he makes the uh, Indian Wells final. And that was like the big thing. It's like, okay, we're at a different level. And then he goes and wins Miami. It's like, okay, we've arrived. And then the bigger one, bigger than Miami, was Montreal that year. Right, with of, a one, two, three in succession. The one, two, three, which, you know, I think, Right after that, he became three. So, yes, because he was four, I think. And that he did that and beating Federer in that match, uh, that was, I remember just being convinced, like, okay, okay, this is, this is a thing. But again, this was title number, like, I don't know, it's been a bunch. This is over three years before 2011, even, which is yeah. crazy. Federer, actually, this is a good bit of trivia. The first title that Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal won don't exist anymore. And, uh, and ha- actually haven't existed in a long time because Federer's first title, I think, is Milan. Out indoors. It hasn't existed in forever. Nadal's first title was a little clay tournament at this that happens at the same part of the year that uh, Amersford used to happen, a Polish tournament called Sopot. That's the first tournament Nadal won. And Felix has had ample chances to win one of these shitty tournaments. And, you know, apologies to the 250s and 500s, but they don't care. 
uh, he's had a chance to win some of these, and he hasn't. And he, in, yeah. You know, evaluating talent is just the hardest thing in tennis because you don't yeah. really see much. You just see them, and you just never know. Like, I think I'm more cautious these days. Sometimes it's easier to think to someone just inspires you. Um, and it becomes very clear, and you become very convinced. Like, like I know that Andres is going to be good at some point whenever she's healthy again, um, I hope. Uh, Sviantec, I think, you don't do what she did randomly. Like, that's right. not an accident. That's not a... I mean, yes, it was a... Even when Chilich pulled the Chilich, it wasn't for the whole tournament. It was for the last three rounds, I think. Yeah. So that's real, I think. But yeah, the others... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, talking about like a really, really glorious performance that was sort of an accident. Um, I was hoping we could talk about uh, the 2009 Australian Open semi with uh, Nadal and Verdasco. Oh um, man, you're just playing the hits now. I love yeah, that, which, that w- match. W- which the vast majority of the tennis world is yet to realize is the greatest match of all time. So um, They don't want to believe it because, and I want to be like, I know it's Verdasco is involved. I don't like Fernando Verdasco. Never liked him. I think he's a hilarious character. Almost a caricature of a tennis player. But, you know, you don't choose these things. That match is incredible. I mean, if anybody listening has not seen it, it's on YouTube, the official Australian Open uh, YouTube channel. Go watch it. You can watch it in installments if you want. You might not be able to because it's just so gripping and so crazy. Ah, uh, that match. That's why I have my rule that Australian Open semifinals, I just, I, I watch. Yeah. No, no matter who's involved, I'll watch them because you never know. And, and this is, this I learned from way before. Because I remember the, one of the first few matches that I remember watching and being really captivated was Agassi Safin. 2004. Yeah, that's when I Safin had a stupid one where he would, I think he played four or five five setters before the final. He plays Federer in the final. He was, there was nothing. There was nothing left. And Federer was, you know. Yeah, Imperial Fed at that point. Yeah, he wasn't. He had barely broken a sweat getting there. And no, and he was at the peak. Next year, Safin got his revenge, which was uh, nice for him. But that year, he had no he had no chance. And that match, actually, I rewatched it again. I rewatched it again. Redundant. Uh, I rewatched it a, lo- a while ago. And it's funny, because Safin's up two sets. And yeah. he blows the next two. And then has to win it. And there was no reason for him to, win, to have that be a five-setter. It ended up being a five-setter. But I remember then, wow, the Australian Open semifinals. Crazy stuff happens, because that happened. And then another one that I'll have seared in my mind is when Fernando Gonzalez beat Haas. And what I, it might actually not be the, the best individual performance anymore because I think what Djokovic did to Nadal in like 2018 or 2019. 2019. Yeah, that was just ridiculous. Because at, at the end of the day, Fernando Gonzalez is playing Tommy Haas. Tommy Haas, nice player. But, you know, it's not yeah. at all. 
not a former champion of the event, not an all-time great, but Gonzalez that day was, I could not believe what I was seeing. And the annoying thing for me was that most of the tennis world was fixated on the other semifinal, which was Federer Roddick. Federer Roddick, yeah. Who also trounced Roddick and destroyed him. I think one said went to a tiebreaker. No, it was, uh, it was like 6-4, and then Federer won like 10 games in a row or something. It was 0-2 after that. And, and that one's actually heralded yes. as like a, a god-mode Federer performance. It, it gets a lot more um, press than the Gonzalez one. Yes, and I was arguing with people back then because they would not. They would be like, oh, I was telling you, you watched the wrong one. <laughs> What's the other one? But, I mean, who was watching Gonzalez Haas? I mean, right. No one was, because even Haas came out of nowhere back then, and, and Gonzo um, kind of came out of nowhere. He did the, but he had started getting results the, the previous fall. Oh, that was fun. So, yeah, Australian, and then nothing at all. Redavasco match. Yeah. I, um, that matches everything. It's incredible. Do you remember the rally where, um, where Nadal like chases does like two pirouettes and like chases down like the the crouching smash and then he hits the passing shot and and Verdasco smiles and then in the replay um Nadal like he smiles for like half a second like this guy who says he never smiles on a court and like he sees Verdasco and he's like yeah like I, I know that was absolutely ridiculous and like he smiles and as soon as like um the corners of his lips go up like it goes away it's just like half a second but it's this insane moment at the peak and then and then that fourth set tie break oh my lord like yeah, yeah I, the hand yes that was the best uh but with, with this box that was the coolest celebration oh yeah I, I watched this whole thing for the first time in may of last year and before that i was firmly in the wimbledon 2008 camp and i saw this and i was like this match has no lulls like from the beginning it is just pure yeah. intensity like i mean because you had verdasco hitting missiles the entire time nadal at the peak of his defense uh, at that point best defender ever definitely and uh, that was just ridiculous yeah it was, and the thing is, so it had a fun narrative that wasn't really explored that much. That's one of the, if you're going to, well, that was kind of like the first, it was a, it was funny. It was actually a piece that I wrote as a comment. And then people liked it. I remember people liked it so much. Nadal fans liked it so much. So they ended up being reposted in like Nadal websites and forums and whatever. Because <laughs> I was just beside myself of what Nadal did in that that match because here he had because it had been two years in a row that he had been booted from the Australian Open by random person who caught fire which used to be a thing yeah, that happened it, it just blasted Open. him off the court yeah and blasted him off the court and against Gonzo he was a little unlucky because he got um, he hurt his ass I remember that was the thing people making jokes about him he, had, he pulled his glute and so he wasn't fully fit but Sangha had smoked them the year before. And he shows up to play freaking Verdasco, who he's owned his whole life. And Verdasco's in God mode for the whole match, except at the end, the, the last point. It's, it's so brutal, the, the way that had to end. Well, and Nadal has, looks at that, feels that, and for the first two sets, like, you know what? I've had it. I'm I'm going to match you. And he was able to match him. But then that kind of wore off. And if you've seen it all, the, less, the rest of the match, he's hanging on for dear life. Because Verdasco's not slowing. <laughs> he's still... It's incredible. 
and it ends on the double fault, which is makes sense for Verdasco because he's like, yeah. I don't think anybody has said more double faults than he has. He's a double fault queen. Can't, one one year I was looking at double fault totals per season, and I think he had the most for like three or four seasons. He's, you know, in the end it was kind of fitting. Yeah, but well, and, and like like one in the whole match, and then two in the last game. I think it and no legs. I mean, he had yeah at that point, much was made at that. I remember at that time that he had worked with uh, Gil Reyes, I guess he's right. famous guy, and c- kind of how tennis has changed so much since then. Because Velasco was bulky in that match. If you see him, he's huge, and a lot of tennis players, especially the the three the three legends, the three goats, they they realized that actually they have to be leaner, mm-hmm. as lean as possible. And if you see. Djokovic not all or Federer these days without a shirt. It's there's not much there. It's all lean muscle and all about being as light as, as you can be to just survive on tour. And but back then this was because in the nineties and with Agassi he had done the same thing. Mm-hmm. But th- that's the, the Verdasco. The narrative around Verdasco is like, oh I worked with Gil Reyes and I'm in the best shape of my life. And he was. And oh my God. I'll never forget about that match is not all in tears. It's crying he's waiting to the return match is over. <laughs> it's not tears of sadness. It's not tears of happiness. It's tears of like, he's broken. Yeah. He, he broke said, um, it, in his autobiography, he says yeah, like from the sheer was... excruciating tension of it all just became too much. Yeah. He was just, it was, it was way too much. So who knows if he doesn't double fault? Yeah, he, he, um, he, uh, Uncle, he said. Uncle Tony says if Ferdasco doesn't double fault, not not if he makes the um, not if he wins that last match point. If he just doesn't double fault, Uncle Tony thinks he would have won. Apparently, and then Nadal says he tends to agree, which which is <laughs> insane to me. And and then, what a match! And then two days later, that final, which is one of the best Federer Nadal matches, um, super underrated. I actually. And, I actually poo-pooed that one a lot because my th- conclusion after it was that this went five because Nadal was broken from the previous one. Yeah. And it took him a little bit to get going. But no, I rewatched that one too. And it's actually pretty good. And it, I, it ends up being underrated. No one talks about it as one of the better Federer Nadal matches, way better than the one they played, uh, what was it, 2017? Oh my gosh! Yeah, that one. That I mean, that one was not good for four sets. It was one playing well and the other not, and then the fifth set they both played well. Yeah, like um, I mean, two thousand nine really tapered off at the end, but in in my mind, like the first three and a half sets w- were just mind blowing. Like I thought it, it was a pretty good level, and then that two all game in the fourth it all culminated with that that wild point, which I think is the best of this era, with Nadal hitting that slap forehand and Federer hitting that like squash shot dead on the run. That ends up as like this bullet into the opposite corner. Do you remember that point? I, if I see it right now, I'll be like, ah, yes, I remember that. I, yeah, that tournament. To me, that's a tournament where they got the surface speed, whatever it is they did. Mm-hmm. That was as good as it could be. Yeah. It was phenomenal. It, the tennis that they produced. That's why I actually always liked Australia because. It wasn't that fast, so people could actually play. Because mm-hmm. um, even when I was a kid, I, I have had this rejection towards fast court tennis. That's why I started watching women's tennis. Because I thought, oh, I, there's some 
rallies here. I can see people do more than just serve. But yeah, that 2009 match, watching it live was a transcendental experience. It lasted so long. And it was starting at what? Back then it was on the East Coast. So it was what, 3 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning? It was that one. And the other one that was kind of similar was uh, that first epic Djokovic Pavarinka match. Oh, 2013. That was yes. that was wonderful. I remember that one. We lived in an apartment and my in-laws were visiting. And I stayed up the whole night watching the match. <laughs> and my mother-in-law wakes up and the match wasn't even over. You're still awake. <laughs> and that was that was a good one because the one that they played in 2014 was not as good. And then the one mm-hmm. they played in the years of it was an atrocity of a match. But yeah, it was it was fun, but so what? How did you get into this? So, um, in unfortunate uh, addiction. Yeah, I mean, so in 2016, I don't remember how it happened, but I was watching Roland Garros, and um, and there was a semi with Murray and Vavrinka, and Murray destroyed him. Um, it was like four sets in six two in the fourth. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But when he was up two sets, Vavrinka came back and won the third. And I, I was like, oh, what is this resilience? This is really cool to watch all this like fist pumping and stuff he's doing. And um, <laughs> so, to the head. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and so then after that, I started watching the majors. And somewhere along there, I just started watching like all big three highlights. And so um, there was one point where a fan made like a compilation of like the, t- the 10 best tennis matches ever. And it was like three minute highlights of all of them. And somewhere in there was... Nadal Verdasco and I remember like the first point of the fourth set tiebreak Verdasco just hits this angle that sends Nadal like past the umpire's chair and like he gets it back and then Verdasco hits a winner and does the open hand I'm like this is remarkable like I need to see more of this so then I just went down the rabbit hole and um yeah so I watched a ton of highlights I think I've seen pretty much all big three matches with each with each other at this point and um and then in 2019 I, I started the, a blog and um, and since then I've been writing with like varying amounts of consistency. But I think at this point I've recently hit a hundred things. Um, and and yeah, like occasionally I'll get a bit burned out and then something new will come along as inspiration. Like I was saying earlier in March, I um I found like the start of the changeover and I just like dove into that and that was that was just a source of constant entertainment for a really long time. Um, I remember like reading things and thinking like that something like this uh, would be so great to have now, but instead you have um, 
ESPN articles by associated staff for like three minutes. But um, oh. so, yeah, I, I went through all of those and um, I hadn't realized yeah. that it had a, that things had changed so much. I, I guess after the these recent Djokovic wins, I was looking at pieces and you know, not, not much has changed. Like Steve Tegner wrote a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, forget who else wrote a good one. Oh, Matt, Matt, Matthew Willis wrote a good yeah. like analysis of it. Uh, Joe yeah. Posnaski, who's a, a baseball guy, wrote a really good piece on the third set. Oh, um, he did? Yeah, I can send it to you if you want. I, I really like it. Oh, that. cool. Yeah, I wrote, what, what was it that happened with Posnaski that I stopped reading him? I think it's because he wrote that uh, <laughs> Joe Paterno book. <laughs> what? I think he ended up writing a Joe Paterno book post uh, Sandusky stuff. And I think that kind of bothered me because I remember liking Poznanski. He likes tennis. When you said Poznanski, I was like, yeah, right. That guy, he likes tennis. Mm-hmm. Brian Phillips didn't write anything about it. Um, I, I don't I know who Brian Phillips check. is. I'll have to look him up on Twitter. Brian Phillips is a, he's an extremely gifted writer. Um, oh, I don't know what he did before, but he used to work at Grandland uh, and he wrote, he would write their pieces. I don't know that he did this Wimbledon because he was doing the Euros for the ringer. But yeah, he's another one another one that I should have checked. But yeah, it mm-hmm. not much has changed. And I feel like there are some independent people that are doing what we used to do back then, but it's like subs tax. Yeah. Not really a not really a, a website. And you know, the reason is pretty clear. It's very, very brutal. I mean one thing that was made clear to all of us back then is that uh, there weren't that many tennis shops. Yeah. There still aren't. I, I, I think mean, there are even fewer now. Like um, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Ben Rothenberg and I think he said um, Tumaini Karayal with the Guardian is like the last guy to come up and get like a big tennis job. And um, and I, and yeah. I think he's in his late 20s at this point. And, yeah. and Tumaini was another tennis Twitter person who had the, what is this block called? Uh, foot fault, right? Foot fault, yeah, yeah. To mine, it's great. We we go. We've been going back and forth for so long. So it's funny how tennis Twitter is. Like, I've met some people. Like, uh, like I said, Andrew Burden. I've met. Uh, we've played tennis. Mm-hmm. He's way better than me because I'm not very good. I started very late. Um, I met Matt <laughs> very random way. Matt Zemek uh, with Lynn with Lindsay, who I still call Linz. Um, you know, we had the site. And we met uh, a few times. It's, it's that kind of relationship. But like Courtney, I have never met. I've never seen in person. Uh, to my level, that one's harder. But even other people like uh, Hannah, who she, she, her blog was awesome. It was going on at the same time as uh, Courtney had her 40 deuce. Uh, hers was the new balls please mm-hmm. and she actually came from tennis world too her handle on tennis world was galois like the galois i don't know how you pronounce in french cigarettes but all these people that they're still around you know she's doing uh the twitter for the tennis podcast so it's like these people have there are these little tiny jobs <laughs> these little tiny tennis jobs out there and but they're not that not that many even even the big ones it's like yeah the, to my i'm so happy that he got the 
the Guardian gig. But I mean, that's like here in the U.S. Yeah, there's Clary has the Times, and the Ringer doesn't really have a full time tennis person. Uh, where else? Like SB Nation. They, I remember they used to have Bill Connolly do tennis, and he's a college football guy. He's now ESPN. I, I saw that he did a tennis thing the other day too. Uh, I think he wrote about Corda. Yeah, there's just it just tells you how tennis has the perception and the place of tennis has changed in the in this country. I feel like it's very much present because people go to the tournaments and people like tennis and people watch tennis and there's a tennis channel and everything, but in terms of like the consciousness, I don't know that Rolling Stone does any more tennis stuff. I think they did it back then and never again. I mean, Rolling Stone, if you're listening, I'd be interested, but yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I have to say like the piece you wrote on sort of describing the difficulty of how, uh, of describing how Djokovic plays tennis um, after the 2015 US Open final that like you just have this way of writing that is like blunt and accurate, but it's never unfair. And that piece just like completely captured him. And as far as I can tell, like writing like that for the big publications just doesn't exist. I don't think they like if they can write that way, I don't think they're allowed to. Um, and no. I think I think the tennis writing really just suffers from that because like anyone can summarize a match. And if you've seen it, then like, you know, those things. But like someone can read your work and think like, you know, I did not know these things about Djokovic or like I sort of sensed them, but I'd never seen them spelled out like this. And I just don't really think work like that exists widely. And that's, that's really unfortunate. Well, that's, well, thank you for, for the compliment, but also you're reminding me of my frustration with not only were there a few tennis jobs, but the tennis jobs seemed to be very clear on what they wanted and what they were. Yeah. And that's also why I kind of didn't want to pursue it because I was not interested in, I didn't want to do that. I didn't see the point of it, mm -hmm. honestly. So I, I wanted to do, which is, I guess, what has gotten me in trouble in my life. Very interested in doing stuff in my own way because I have conviction in what I'm doing. And I'm not very interested in lying or pretending mm -hmm. or just performing for performance sake. That's just not. Even though my daughter is exactly the same, so she, it's gonna be hilarious how she fares in life. But yeah, it's just if you're strong-willed, I think uh, you know. I tend to be unkind with my work ethic, but if I look back at what I did in 2012, 2013, I mean, I put in the the hours. I don't know how many hours I devoted to the to the site and to write and to think because some pieces I was trying to do my like DIY analytical work. I was compiling the stuff myself and because you didn't have access to any of that. This was before Sackman did his uh, tennis abstract before people did uh, the, the charting thing there. And there was so much work into these things, so much work. And looking at the numbers, trying to get numbers, but also trying to get numbers with stuff that we liked. <laughs> so uh, it was just a lot of work. Uh, be nice if there's 
if there were a chance to do, like, I don't know if, I don't know, maybe podcasting is, is a better form for tennis these days. Um, I didn't used to listen to a whole lot of tennis podcasts and, and now I'm slowly starting to, and it might be a better space because even, you know, print is dead. And I don't know that web articles are going to be alive for that much longer either uh, with social media. Because, yeah, you use social media to publicize your pieces. But actually, we used to do this, look at the, um, at our numbers, and it was kind of depressing how we didn't get that much engagement out of social media. Uh, I remember the, the craziest engagement we got then we got in trouble for it, was uh, Reddit. If Reddit got a word of our stuff, it would blow up. And I think I started posting the stuff there. And I'm not never been much of a Reddit person, but it was a really good introduction to how some communities in Reddit operate. It's like those little fiefdoms, like, we have these rules. Don't you dare not obey these rules. So they didn't like uh, self-publishing or whatever, <laughs> self-publicizing. Like, okay, whatever. I'm out of here. Uh, it's just such a weird... That year was... I mean, it had its great moments. It had its depressing moments. I mean, I'm looking at my last... My first... My last... My first page, I guess, the few things that I, that I was writing. Uh, stuff about the, the Women's World Tour Finals. I remember I, the Never Forget series I always liked. Uh, though, yeah, th- those were so fun. There was one you did that was like two parts on uh, that like 2018 tiebreak Federer and Safin played in 2004. That was fun. Oh, yes. That, that one, I was, I was thinking about that the other day. It was just staggering the, the interviews they had with people. It was 2004 and the other guys were like, oh my, this Federer's amazing. Dude. <laughs> Your job is to beat him. <laughs> and I think... Was it, I don't know if it was Hewitt or Roddick or one of them, was the only one. It was one of them that was like not gushing completely. But I mean, it's interesting. It's one of those, sometimes what happens in social media these days, and I kind of hinted at uh, the other day on, on Twitter, well, anybody paid attention, but what ends up happening on Twitter is something happens. People react one way and then other people react to the reaction. And then it just escalates. And sometimes I was thinking about it, thinking about the French Open, uh, that because that was such a backlash, right? So the match is happening. It's incredible. And people are starting to say, this is one of the best, best matches ever. Which oh, my wasn't. God. I... But so people get really excited. And then people get really mad at the people who are really excited. Yeah. And then it goes back and forth. And I was thinking, no one really stopped to wonder why the people who were getting really excited were saying that. Yeah, and it's kind of like the same thing with that Federer Seven thing. Where, uh, why were they saying that? And the reality is, Federer just broke everybody's brain. Now it doesn't seem like that because we've lived with Federer this whole time. Yeah, it's, that was seventeen years ago, which is wild. Was, but yeah, and people don't understand. I remember making this analogy back in the tennis world days that you had Sampras who was anointed the GOAT, even though not only did he never win the French Open. He never, never made it past the semis, yeah. Made one semifinal. 
and, and, and he got waxed too. It was like a <laughs> six zero and two or something. Oh, if you if you want, uh, you should check out a Pete Boder actually wrote a a first autobiography with Pete Sampras. I forget I, what it's I, called. I've actually read it. It's called uh, A Champion's Mind. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think Sampras actually says like he was feeling good going into that match. Yeah. Um, and, and the biggest story is remember the pizza that he wanted to have a greasy. Yeah. Pizza. Yeah. Right. Right. And he was like, no, I shouldn't do that before a final. <laughs> and his biggest regret is not playing better. His biggest regret is not eating <laughs> pizza because <laughs> he thought in his mind that <laughs> his body was telling him that he needed that. And then in the final, he just felt like he had nothing. And he got, yeah, Kafelnikov destroyed him with his straight sets. But anyway, I was saying that Sampras was the GOAT. And here comes Federer, who is like the super, the sleeker, way more nimble, way flashier version of Sampras. And I compared him to the Terminators. Sampras was the Schwarzenegger Terminator, and Federer was the liquidy other Terminator, which, you know, obviously the first Terminator beats the other one. Doesn't matter. I haven't even seen the movie. But the point was you had this one that was kind of massive and old school and just strong. And you had this one that could be anything. And I remember watching matches back then and what surprised people so much was how Federer would uh, counterpunch, which is the thing that he doesn't do that much these days. But back then, because he was younger and he had his legs uh, and he was more consistent than most people, I mean, that's the reality. He would just sit back, and that's where I think he got his bad habit of um, his second serve returns, which is his biggest Achilles heel. Because he would just be super happy to just chip it back and let's start at the point and let's see what you can do. Yeah, and then and Rafa came anything. off. And, yeah, yeah, and it all was like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna hit that. <laughs> that's gonna be the end of you. And then Djokovic did the exact same thing, and and he never. He never, I don't know that he ever understood that that was an actual problem. I don't think Federer thinks too much about return to serve. I mean, he famously had this, has that quote that he says he does never practice. Like, I cannot believe that, that he said that. I mean, because at some point he had to realize that Nadal was destroying all his slices. And I... no, and he would just chip it back. And that's when he put it in play. Because a lot of times just dumped it into the net. Yeah. But Federer in the early days, he would just... Because Sampras had a thing with his forehand, if you watch old Pete's matches, where he was he was such a cerebral, pragmatic player, he had his spots for his forehand. He was kind of like an NBA uh, shooter or an, an NBA player where they get to a spot, and from that spot, they're money. From the other spot over there, eh, not so much. And Federer comes around in that forehand, I mean, he could hit it from anywhere to anywhere. And it was a point that if not won it outright, the balance of the point just completely changed with one swing. And usually if a guy had that big of a weapon, that guy wouldn't move that well. And then he was fetter moving like a gazelle and gliding around the court, looking pretty. It just, it broke people's minds. Like you were not supposed to be those two things and he had the serve and he had the one-handed backhand which already makes people lose their minds <laughs> which i remember on magro i think i talked to him about it in uh, in houston and I, I might be misremembering or misattributing but I have this memory of him saying something like 
yeah, people love my backhand, but it's actually my worst shot. <laughs> it was true. His backhand sucked. It was very pretty. I liked it a lot. It's a bad shot. It's the same as, uh, I mean, Federer has a very pretty one-hander. But, like, it, it holds him back. Like, it's why he doesn't beat the other two, like, 90% of the time. Shot. Yeah. I mean, he has this weird thing that Nadal has kind of two where, you know, Federer can blow a bunch of rally backhands, shank them, send them long, send them short. But if you approach that backhand, he's going to yeah. pass you. He will pass you 10 times out of 10. And early on, that was enough because he didn't need to do much more than that. And it was work because he also moved so well, he would run around it. In his forehand, I mean, the when people talk about, you know, Federer's prime back then, and I do think he, you know, this opinion has also made people angry, but I think he, they've all, all three have become better players as they've aged. And obviously it's that tragedy in some sports where you see an athlete kind of reach this mental uh, peak, this experience peak where they see everything, they know everything, but their body's not the same. Right. So if you could get their knowledge and their polish in their younger body, then that'd be the perfect player. Um, and with Federer, his forehand back then is ridiculous. I mean, best forehand ever. You could, the things that he did, and he did it with one swing. And what's hilarious is that, and I recommend that people watch this match because it's so funny. The final he destroys Hewitt at, it's like 2004 US Open. Yeah. It is so funny because Hewitt plays a dreadful match. I mean, he, he just, He's bad in that match. Federer, I don't know that he hits more than 10 backhands. And the ones that he hits are terrible. But his forehand is so good. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But then it all comes. And that's someone at his talent level. And that's where things become more complicated. And then Djokovic comes. And it gets, and it gets twice as bad. Yeah. And then even Murray comes, and who's kind of a, a slightly worse version than Djokovic. And all of a sudden, no, I mean, that backhand is not enough. It was enough. It was enough for a long time for a lot of success, but it was not enough about those guys. So I often wonder if uh, a sliding doors, uh, thinking of sliding doors, because I was listening to the tennis podcast earlier today, ones that they did at the end of last year, I think. And uh, a sliding doors moment that I always think, it's not really a sliding doors. It's more like a what if. What would have happened if Federer actually had come up at the same time as Djokovic and Nadal and not right. five years before because while he accumulated a bunch of titles, a bunch of slams and a bunch of accolades and took the pole position in terms of everybody loving him and everything and owned tennis I think he got in some really bad habits that some yeah. he was able to break. I mean his backhand is a way better shot than it used to be it's like it's an actual shot. It's not as good as his forehand I wouldn't call it a strength, but it's not a liability that it used to be. I just wonder because Djokovic and Nadal pushed each other. Well, I mean, Nadal I mean, they're pushed... still they're still doing it, even like yeah, like Djokovic is blowing my mind these days because he. Someone said that, and it's true. Like he hasn't lost half a step. He hasn't lost a quarter of a step. He's someone I mentioned was saying that in 2011 they were defending better and I, was, I don't think so like i've seen not all yeah he doesn't move around the hard court like he does but djokovic just seems 
he's doing the crazy things that he does these days that I'm like, how the hell did he get that? He still does it. Um, yeah, Djokovic is unique and he's kind of redefining. I mean, all three did, honestly, because back then also in, in the tennis world, <laughs> I said, yeah, Nadal's going to make it to 25 and then that's it. That's what <laughs> you thought. That yeah. Players like him would, would not last, last very long because people saw Hewitt and other players that throughout history, you would peak at 23, maybe 25, 27, you're out. Yeah. You're barely hanging on. And no, no, these days, you know, these three guys and other people too, like Stan, he woke up at 28. Like, I think. Yeah. I mean, his early 30s was like his peak. Yeah. And yeah. And it was because he found a way to improve. I and mean, if these guys, that's that's the, the name of the game. If you don't improve, because that's, that's been, for example, Joe Willie Songa's problem. He never really improved. His peak was, he was the same player at the end as he was at the beginning. And actually what ends up happening is if they had been the same player, that'd be fine, but they actually become worse players. And someone like Joe, who had so much natural talent, uh, a weird player that should have had a one-handed backhand instead of a two-hander. I don't know what his coaches were thinking, but yeah, just never improved. Bird is another guy who just never really improved. And, you know, both guys did maintain a good level every so often and for a relatively long period of time, but they never could become that next, the jump that Stan made. Like yeah. Stan was a guy who was pretty good. Like he was a master's finalist in 2008, also yeah. Djurkovic in Rome. And, but Stan literally improved everything. I mean, he wasn't in that good of a shape. He was in amazing shape. He didn't cover the court very well. He didn't became, didn't become amazing. But he, he could stay in points. Yeah. And his forehand, which was the point-ending shot, was very erratic, became more consistent. And he stayed in matches better because before he would crumble. And there you go. Yeah, I mean... But it's not like that's a given. It barely yeah. ever happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, like, I used to think with Djokovic and Nadal that, like, they had declined physically. But what you said earlier is making me think that like in 2012, maybe it wasn't that it broke them. Maybe they were just saying, like, it's not worth it. Like, I want to win, like, in ways that doesn't make my body, like, feel like it's on fire. Um, and, yeah, that's <laughs> and that's something that I guess I've slowly started understanding is, like, when people say, like, this gen is weak, it's like, it's not that it's weak. It's just that it doesn't have an alien in it, and we have three of them right now. And everyone else yeah. is just built differently and can't do these same things, and that we just really shouldn't expect it. No, th this is like my endless argument with uh, Andrew Burton, because he he's uh, he wrote even for us for the changeover some stuff about the he calls them the Lost Boys, which is the group that came right. after the Djokovic and Nadal, and Dimitrov and Raonic and Ferrer and those guys who, I mean, it's just it happens. Like it happens. You you don't get one goat in the previous group, two goats in the next. What do you want in the next one? Three Eventually, yeah. you're gonna get a bad crop. Like no one gets good crops all the time. Yeah, and it was just—it so happened that that crop was first. It was a small cohort. Then it wasn't—I mean, there was talent there, but that's another one that got wrecked by injuries. I mean, injuries wreck every, everything. That's actually what has been remarkable about the the three because it seemed like 
not always going to be the one wrecked by injuries. Yeah. And he's had a bunch of injuries, but he's 120 overcome. anyway, which yeah, yeah, he's overcome them all. Um, I mean, he seemed like he was not going to have any knees and he figured it out. He doesn't have knee problems anymore. He has a uh, back issues uh, or random sort of random issues. But the thing with Nadal was like, how long are those going to knees, those knees going to hold? Are people talking about how he's probably end up only playing on clay? And nope, there he is. And he's managed to transcend that. Federer was always, I mean, we were talking two hours ago about how in 2004 he had that injury. And that was really the only one for a long time. Yeah. And Djokovic had all sorts of physical issues, but those weren't really injuries. It was more, he was just not strong enough. Like if you watch that 2007 match against Nadal, the matches that Indy Wells in Miami, Djokovic looks oh, like a kid. That um that Miami match, do you remember the point like in the last um I oh, think to save game, break point he has to save like he has to hit like four smashes to win a point yes. and after he just like bends down and like puts his racket on his forehead and he just <laughs> looks broken like his body can't handle what he's doing it's it's crazy that that last game is one of my favorite things I used to there used to be this recording nuts. that they they took it out of of YouTube I think for copyright or whatever but I think it was a Serbian uh, recording it was. Uh, it was and it was the only version that you had of that the end of that match and it was that end of the game was phenomenal that's a match that actually had to this is one of the things that i envy you so much is that when i started getting into tennis i had no way of recording anything there's no youtube you watched it or you didn't watch it (laughs) that was basically it i remember when my wife and i got together um one of the presents that she gave me was that uh there was some this dude, I don't know if he still does it, but he would record everything. He had a website and uh, you could order matches from him and he would send you the DVDs. That's what I still have a pile of DVDs in our useless media closet because everything's streaming these days. A pile of DVDs of random matches that uh, I gave her or she gave to me. And yeah, but now someone like you who's 19 and can do what you've done like catch up like it's all everywhere like um i mean i remember Even days in- where i would i would curl up on a sofa and i'd be like okay like djokovic federer french open 2012 and i'd watch like highlights of that and then in your recommended shows up like five more of their matches and then you just go for hours and hours and hours and yeah that's definitely none of that moment. existed if you wanted i think i even those like the bit torrent days i would download random if someone had a match but those were difficult because they were big files and broadband was just starting it was it was a trip it was like an absolute uh it was hard i mean that's why i guess that's why that community at tennis world was so uh was so great that people were able to watch different things and then you you read their stuff about matches that you didn't have access to that was not, I mean, I wish that everybody had had a chance to experience that initial tennis world community because it was nice. And then, yeah, it started changing because then you started getting the, you know, the, the fanatics, the, the fundamentalists on, on both sides. Well, initially there was just the two sides. I still remember the people, like the individuals that would lead the factions <laughs> of one against the other. 
because I mean the the fed, Fedal is all about love now, but it was yeah. vicious back then. Because uh, I feel like Fedal now is the, the living embodiment of that gif of the the hands agreeing or shaking yeah. over, against Djokovic. <laughs> right, it's all it good is. between us. And and um, for like a year after I got into tennis, that that was me. I didn't understand what was amazing about Djokovic. I saw a guy who like broke rackets sometimes and i was like well he doesn't have like the awesome forehand like he i mean i'm like obviously he's at the top for a reason but like i don't see why um and no one would tell you on tv anyway yeah i mean which is insane so um this year i was watching a Djokovic match and um on tennis channel and brett haber goes uh you know jason uh would you put Djokovic's backhand up there with the best in the world? I'm like, you can't, you can't be serious. <laughs> like it's in, in 2021 when you've seen him in his prime for like, oh my. Well, Haber's the one who, I think, I think we watched the same thing or at some point I remember Haber being like, well, better backhands. Uh, about <laughs> I think he meant to put like Djokovic and Murray Federer. What? No, no. Like, there's a <laughs> no. th- there's a telegraph poll that I have bookmarked from 2017, and it's who is the greatest returner of serve, and the options are Djokovic, Murray, Agassi, and Federer. And oh can you guess God. who has the most votes? Oh, Federer, obviously. Yeah, and I'm, and this was over like 20,000 people, or like over 15,000 people who voted. I'm like, how is this possible? It's it's crazy. I mean, the funny thing is, this is like the funniest thing about Federer, which is so weird. But it kind of is him to the T. Like he's actually an an above average, very good first serve returner. It's just the second yeah. serve returns, which is a thing that no one pays attention to, no one understands, which is also part of the reason no one really understands Djokovic. Because sometimes people even compare Djokovic negatively to Agassi, for example. Because he was just what, more aggressive. He would hit more return winners. Agassi was trying to, yeah, he was trying to end the point because he wasn't nearly as good covering the court as Djokovic was. I mean, I guess his thing was just standing at the middle of the baseline, toying with you like a cat, sending you, but he wasn't, he knew that he had to be on the front foot to have a chance because it's not like he was going to play amazing defense and get back in the point. I mean, he, he was okay, but not like amazing. Whereas Djokovic, because he's so gifted defensively and because he's so complete, can afford to be like, no, I'm not going to end that point. I'm just going to put you in the back foot and let's see what you can do now that you have to suffer through this. Start the point behind the baseline and with me on the baseline. Let's see how you like that. And we can go. Because that's the thing. I mean, in tennis, it's all about setting your terms and being able to impose your terms. And that's, and no one understands that. People are like, yeah, Joker says, sends him down the middle. And some people, like I remember, Someone, uh, uh, another old Twitter friend was asking me, like, did Djokovic in 2011, because, you know, we're going back and forth about the, the terrible Federer press conference after the he blows that match, the oh, semifinal. That, that was some press conference. He got no flack for it. That was dreadful. He got nothing, no consequence whatsoever, which still bothers me till today. But my friend, uh, who I wish I knew his name, but he's just, Mr. Pigs. <laughs> it's always been Mr. Pigs. We've been going back and forth like a decade and it's still Mr. Pigs. He's like, but the Djokovic really, the people know him as a good returner. And I was like, well, I mean, my memory was when Djokovic won the Australian Open 2008, ESPN used to do these little videos that 
they're lost now. Uh, they used to put them on their website, and it was it was this clip of Cahill talking to camera. It was not part of the broadcast. Something that they just put up for the website, and Cahill was like super enthusiastic, saying Djokovic is the best returner of serve right now. And yeah, I guess people. This is my long beef and long complaint and endless rants about how people just don't understand return of serve and they don't pay attention to return of serve and they don't understand what is a good return of serve or how hard some is, some are like even just recently that when Djokovic won that uh, Dubai or Doha whichever one of those against Monfils yeah and he was facing match points he was down match point people were saying that Monfils choked in the first match point I was like did you not see what I saw? He hit a 123-mile-an-hour second serve down the tee. That's not choking. That's literally the opposite of choking. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming up with the goods on match point. It's just the other guy got it back because he's he does these things. Like, he does this. So I think in 2011, I knew he was one of the best. But I actually... Don't think many people knew because most people don't understand return of serve. You, it's one thing that someone mentioned it on a broadcast or on somewhere that it's a shame that I think it was on a broadcast and it was of a Djokovic match that was kind of complained that we see replays of these winners and all that, but we never see a replay of a good return of serve. It's just yeah, a thing that happens. And that's a great so, point. And sometimes they don't even talk about it. <laughs> like, did you just, the one person who, kind of hurts to give credit to because I do think he's the worst commentator in tennis. John McEnroe is actually makes a point of talking about return of serve. He his mind is blown always with Djokovic's returns. If you watch him a Djokovic match with McEnroe, he will make comments. He'd be like, what a return. And he I think he was the first guy who said that Djokovic was the best returner ever. Okay. And well, saying that's, like that's something to give him credit for, I guess. He needs it. A broken clock is right <laughs> twice a day. Yeah, I mean, and he's been, but it's one of those that doesn't, it works kind of against Djokovic and this idea anyway, because John McEnroe saying it. Yeah. So it's I, like the bad I, messenger I mean, him, for a good message. Yeah. I mean, him, Darren Cahill, and you may have been like in the, we're in the minority apparently with knowing about that because, and it's a wonder that people didn't figure it out. And like 2008 2009 when nadal is down all these break points against federer and like he sends the kicker to the backhand gets a weak return and then he hits the ace down the tee and it's like that's that is the return of serve like that is the problem it's not it's not what he's doing after that um yeah it's it's yeah, really wild to think about well one of my old rants used to be that people didn't understand Federer. like they don't understand his whole game they're so swept up in like the image and the and the iconography and, yeah. that they don't really focus on what makes him who he is. Uh, I found very frustrating too. You know, that's another thing that I don't, I don't miss because with Twitter, I can just jump in and out whenever I want. But, but when I was doing the changeover and when I was even for Rolling Stone, I feel like I had to be on Twitter to kind of have a presence I don't miss that because you get into these arguments with people who just say terrible. I mean, the other ones I got called the other day because I just because of my tweet about how that 
terrible comment, bad comments that Federer made about Djokovic at the Australian Open in 2009. Even though he was, he didn't play Djokovic, he wasn't going to play Djokovic. Djokovic yeah. had already lost to somebody else. And Federer is like going at length about this. Which is just crazy to think about. And that people were agreeing with him too. Like no one said, dude, the guy's 21. Like, can we chill for a little bit? No one said that. And I posted, put that Twitter out. And two days later, someone tweeted me like, you are the, it's a good thing you don't write anymore and you just cook because you're the biggest low life I've ever seen. Oh my just God. Like these personal attacks, this random person. It's like clearly and, never know, read anything you've written as well. Like, no, I mean, they don't care. They just find it and get annoyed. So, but these days it's easy because I just go, whoop, mute. Yep. Goodbye. So have fun talking to the void. Yeah. Because um, I, I prefer that to blocking. Like, you can see all my stuff. I don't give a shit. Because even if I block you, there's ways to see my my tweets anyway. So it's not like I'm permanently blocking you. Fair. Um, if I blocked you and I protect my account, then yes, you won't be able to see my tweets. But I'm not going to do that. So no, I'm just going to mute you and let you talk <laughs> and, and believe that I see it. But I don't. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think it's a good way of dealing with it. And I think another so many people it's I, i've i've blocked a few I've, I've started muting more recently because then you just never see it i think another problem yes. is that it comes from everywhere like i remember a tweet of yours from like i think it was late last year early this year or something and you were like um Djokovic is in good form like should be good to win this tournament if he doesn't hit another lines person with a ball or something oh, like yeah, that that went, that went over well <laughs> yeah and like and you just got attacked i'm like people like what are you doing this is clearly a joke and like and you're not you're not out to get Djokovic. You're like one of the people who's written the best things about him, and that was upsetting to me. Yeah, that was I, that was so funny. I mean, I just find it hilarious because yeah, that that's the day when the <laughs> the radical arm of the the the, the Dole fam just yeah. turned on me. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> always it, there. They're they're recently because you know I've been tweeting praise because you know he's doing the crazy things he's doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that some of them are following me back. I was like, oh, you unfollowed me back then. I see you're following me back. I wonder right. what changed. Uh, just the tune. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've always, I was remembering this other story that uh, back in 2006, I mean, Federer was my favorite player back then. He was, that's that's the person who got me hooked on tennis again, like I said earlier. And he he shows up at Wimbledon that jacket in 2006 and i thought and that's when that that's the beginning of the img thing that was a i mean it was a conscious thing it was like img saying okay this guy clearly is under being underutilized which he was because like i said it was a diy operation no coach very small team nothing and then img comes and that's when they wanted to they started lumping him in with uh, tiger woods with uh i forget who else was Thierry Henry and, and getting him the the sponsorships, the high level sponsorships and all that. And Nike gives him that jacket, and he comes out of Wimbledon. I remember on Tennis World being like, "You've got to be kidding me! This is my favorite player at that point." And and I'm thinking, "You have got to be kidding me! What on earth is this? Was he wearing a waiter's jacket to come on court and play tennis? 
because it was so clear what they were trying to do is that, and I guess I don't know if it was easier for me to understand because studying film you you talk a lot and, and think a lot about symbols like nothing is um, in film very few things are accidental you're always even when you're not trying to say something something might be a, a symbol for something else everything you say has a connotation and for me with a jacket they were saying this is class this is like th this is the prince of tennis this, yeah this is the prince of tennis this is tradition this is wimbledon this is tennis with a t white with a jacket i was like wow that is so preposterous and i remember putting on writing on tennis will just brutally making fun of it and that did not go over well <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's the funniest it, thing is that it inspired a, a a fun relationship with a with a person that I wonder where she is. She probably blocked me already. Um, she's from a writer from Israel. Very impressive. Very smart. Um, on tennis world, she hadn't. She was because on tennis world, you had a bunch of people who posted, it, and then you had a bunch of people, larger group that just lurked and didn't post because they didn't feel welcome or they didn't feel like they had anything to say. And I get it. I lurk in a, a, other places too, but uh, she started posting as anti-me. <laughs> so we would go back and forth. She wasn't angry. I mean, she was, she, she loved the jacket, but we would go back and forth and, and it was just super fun, <laughs> but other people did not take it very well. And, yeah. and I couldn't believe that. I, it was like, this is so obviously ridiculous. What is happening here? And it's those moments. The, the the I don't know when the Dolphins turned on me, but I'm sure they've they've turned. Some of them still hang around. They, oh, what if if I dare make fun of his hair, just oh yeah, yeah. Then I can't do that, even though every tournament. But then my wife doesn't let me tweet because she's a Dolphin. That's <laughs> why. Please tweet something about his hair. He's like, nope. I kind of just want to link him to uh, the Men in Blazers guys because they have their whole thing about not fighting. That's fighting it and just shave it, just shave it. Yeah, but she won't let me. Yeah, when when I when I make fun of it all, that's they they also they do not take a joke, and the Jeopardy fans do not take a joke at all. Yeah, it's um the it's, radical wing. It's still scary to me how intense like love in tennis is. Um, and and like I've I've felt that when I got into the sport, I was a Federer fan, and um. And I watched him lose to Raonic at the 2016 Wimbledon from two sets to one off, and I was devastated. And then I looked Did at you the get stats. Hurt in that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, at start of the fifth, and then I looked at the stats in the final where Murray just crunched Raonic because he could actually return his serve. And I saw Raonic had hit way fewer aces against Murray than Federer, and I was like personally offended, not just the, at the <laughs> prospects that Murray could be a better player than Federer, but that he could possibly be a better returner of serve than Federer. Like that, that made me hurt inside and it scares me to look back on it. And it's, it's taken me a couple of years to get to the point where I feel like I can cons consider myself a neutral or at least capable of evaluating things neutrally. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't, at the end of the day, like it doesn't even matter if you're neutral. I think the important thing is to be fair and yeah, because yeah, when when I was back in your shoes, around your age, and also a Federer fan, oh my God, Nadal was my least favorite player. I made fun of him so much, and I loathed him. And it all started changing. I remember because I had a I had my own blog actually. I like how I forgot about this. I remembered it now. 
uh, I had a Blogspot blog when I when I started posting on Tennis World. I did have my own Blogspot blog, but I took it down because it was not great, and no one should ever go look for it because it was not very not no, uh, it was bad. But I remember writing because that's where I that's why I remembered it. I remember writing something there about how Nadal had just gotten. He earned my respect in 2006 when he showed up in Dubai. He was oh, yeah. literally starting to play tennis again uh, after his, because he didn't play the Australian Open because of his foot issue. And he goes to Dubai where, where Federer had reigned supreme. And he just beat him. He beat him in three. And he beat him in a way that it was just very interesting because it was a, a very cerebral way he played that match, very coherent way he played that match. And it was out of his comfort zone. I mean, yes, he had won a, a, a bunch of tournaments on a heart of the previous year, even a Masters. But this was a Federer court. And he beat him. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you're, you're not a hack. You're obviously... Because 2005, when you're young and when you're a fanatic and you, you're not fully formed, 2005 seemed like almost like bullshit. Because that year was... Now I feel like it's kind of underappreciated just how crazy 2005 was for Nadal. that clay season, like winning everything as an 18 year old. And um... he took over, he just destroyed everybody. He ended careers. He was that, amazing. That, that Rome final should really be talked about more. It was that's another one that crazy. I started watching live, fell asleep, got up many hours later because that's the time when in Argentina I went to school at night. So I would sleep through the day. So I remember starting watching the beginning before I went to bed, mm-hmm. sleep for the for the night, and then <laughs> and then waking up and be like, wait, what is? Why are they still playing? And I still remember this class. I had a, a an actor directing actors class, and the uh, guy talked about the match <laughs> in, the, in class the other day. The the the, the professor it was so funny, but yeah, two thousand five was wild. Because he starts it, you know, the, the big Madrid thing. Not Madrid, Miami thing. Right. Kind of unfortunate for him he could, because Miami is one of the masters that he hasn't won. And if they had switched the best of three, he wins the match. He really should have won it as it was. He's up 4-1 in the third. I have forgotten about that. I remember watching that match and thinking, wow, okay, whatever. And then the clay season happens. And then they play at the, the French Open semifinal against Federer. Which I thought Federer was going to win, and it wasn't. I mean, I know the four said it was like a tiebreaker thing, but it wasn't really very close. Yeah, I remember not even watching the final because thinking, "Oh, he's obviously going to win." But then he goes and wins Montreal or wherever they played. I think it was Montreal, beating Agassi in the finals. Like, wait, mm-hmm. whoa, what's what's going on here? I thought he was just good on clay, and he ends up winning other tournaments. He ends up uh, winning uh, Madrid, and it was just. It is kind of lost in, in time, I think. That was an insane season for somebody to do that at, at his age. I, I think he won like over 10 tournaments or something, right? Or something like that? I think he won 10. I think he won 10. I'm, I want to say that it's 10. Um, because he and Federer had the same number of tournaments. And I think they won the same number of uh, Masters as well. Uh, let me see. My favorite, and I, I'm sure you know this because... 
I would guarantee that you know this, but one of my favorite websites you know, of the internet are the the Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic career statistics pages on Wikipedia. Yes, those are those are fantastic. They are the, the best. So in 2005, Nadal was actually terrible at the slams, or not as good, like fourth round in Australia, yeah. win the French Open, but then second round and third round of the other two, 13 and three. Uh, misses the World Tour Finals for reasons that we already discussed. Uh, they don't even do well in Davis Cup. They lost in the first round. Wow. Doesn't play Indian Wells because he's, I think he was still hurt from something the year before. Miami final. And then Monte Carlo win. He doesn't play Hamburg because he played Barcelona and Rome. And Rome was such a violent final. Um, he wins. Then he wins Canada. Cincinnati loses in the first round. And he wins Madrid and with a broken, with a messed up foot. And, and from end, two sets down against Lubacic as well. That was, th- that's an underrated titles. one. Yes. Oh my God. 11 titles in, in 2011 because he won four Masters, a Slam, and then he won, this title should be somewhere here. Yeah, lost Miami and then won the next finals. He won. Oh, this is the Masters. Yes, so much stuff. Yeah, he wins. Actually, he won the Brazil Open, wherever that was back then. He wins that one. That's one uh, FAA can target, maybe. Hey, he had that one. (laughs) That's before Brazil was. That was when I mean, this was before the 250 or everything. This is when, this is when it was clear what the, obviously the slams were clear what the masters were, and mm-hmm. below that it was everything murky. else. And, yeah, because there was, they were called international gold and international, but you could not. You, I mean, you kind of knew which ones were the bigger ones, but it was pretty murky. So he went to Acapulco. Yeah, he beat Albert Montañez one in love in the final. Because that's the year he had this insane uh, form on clay, too. Like, he won, like, a million matches because he played before the French. Uh, I mean, before that early part after the Australian Open, then the full clay season, and then he played afterwards, I think. I'm pretty sure. Because he then wins Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Rome, French Open. Then he plays uh, Bastard. <laughs> he plays Bastard. He plays Stuttgart, which was clay back then. Not not grass. So yeah, he won insane. Canada. Then he somehow played Beijing before they had the nice facilities from the Olympics. This is when it was like in a crappy, it looked like a convention center. And then he plays Madrid, and that's it. That's incredible. He lost he won two finals, lost Miami, and then won nine in a row. What a year. That's (laughs) what a year at 18. And it's crazy because back then he didn't have a serve, he didn't have a backhand, but he was so ridiculously fast, and and he had like most of the forehand already. That yeah, I, I mean, I he remember some like of heck. those. I remember some of those points against Korea. There was one where he was down a double break in the fifth, and he got a break point to get one of them back, and he plays like this ridiculously intelligent point, like ending with a drop shot, and he just does like the raised fist, and then he does like the jumping celebration. It's like, dude, you're still down 3-1, and you've played like four and a half hours, and then he somehow comes back to win that. That was completely surreal. One day I'm actually going to watch that in, in its entirety, because I 
Cody is another guy who's just he was he could have ended up as one of the great returners of all time. If you look at his numbers, they're crazy. And not he's, only on clay. He I think he's also like the the go to converting break points in terms of stats, or at least he was at the end of twenty nineteen. And he was not a large man. He was tiny. Yeah. His was that's another thing I, I really respected about Ferrer. He was such an amazing returner for somebody who was short, didn't have a whole lot of reach. Unbelievable returners. I mean, the fact of the matter is the this era of the the, the three goats is there were also some great returners in there and a lot of them are gone. Yeah. Like Nalbandian was an amazing returner. Saffron was actually one of the better big men returners ever. Like maybe it's him and Del Potro and that's it. Yeah. Uh, then you had uh, Davidenko who was amazing. Uh, Ferrer, these guys are gone. Yeah. And now no one can return serve. Yeah. And, and like this is the era of giants. And the thing is, like being tall, like too tall, really screws you as a returner. Um, like, I mean, you have, you have like Medvedev who can do his stretchy thing, but he's, he's a special case. Like, um, something, uh, Karlovich was playing at, uh, Newport. And, um, something that I wanted to ask him was like, if, if you could start your career over as like a six foot tall guy, like, would you do it? Um, and I feel like, and he, he said maybe because he would be able to like better develop like his return and his defense. And, and I mean, it makes sense. Like if you can't return serve in this era, like you're completely toast. Well, speaking of Karlovich, it's cool that you got to see him in person because his serve in person is so pretty. It, it like, was, I know he's, it was nuts. he's gigantic, but that serve motion is just, it's perfect. It's there. He wastes no motion, just kind of tosses the ball up. It's amazing. I remember watching him in, in Houston and thinking, wow, I'm actually glad I saw this because yeah. it, it's devastating. And he does, he does this one thing so incredibly well. Yeah. And it makes no sense that he plays the sport really because he he's a he's a big guy. Because now we have I wonder who the who we can say is the first one of the big guys who can actually move. Because really before, if you were a big guy, you couldn't move. You I, were kind of like Carlos, you were kind of kind of like Isner. Like you yeah. you couldn't move. And Anderson does a decent job of it. He's six nine, but not but like for a big server, not in general. Um well, when he when he cracked the top ten. When he was to, he, he got to number five. five. Yeah. Yeah. He that won a, like 48 matches in 2018. You know, he, we're talking about how it rarely it happens that people improve. He's a guy who actually did a, had kind of a, a Stan. Yeah. Arc there. Yeah. Of like, okay, we're going to take it up a notch. It's just, you know, he wasn't as good as Stan. There wasn't that much to work with as it was as we, Stan had, but he still. Porsche, he still made it. He's, he was still in his late twenties. Yeah. What he did at Wimbledon against Federer in 2018 was crazy. I was um, so I, I got on a plane with Federer up six two zero three, and then I get off the plane and I see that Federer has come back to win the second, and then after that, like five seven four six eleven thirteen, and I'm like, what the hell just happened? Um, and and Anderson played well too. He um, like he he saved a match point, and then he hit like a return winner to break in the third. Um. But yeah, he's he's a yeah. This is kind of like a poor man's version of the stand thing, and sadly he yeah. didn't get the the slam break because his two slam finals, Nadal against Djokovic yeah. and once against Nadal. It's like I don't remember what his what his uh, road was at the U.S. Open, 
But that, that was really mean. easy. That draw completely fell apart. He got um, cranio boost on the semi, I think. Yeah, it was something like that. That one, I mean, that all was just much better. But the Djokovic one, he probably would have had a better shot, but I mean, he was he was toast because yeah of, the, of his semifinal. And that's because he came back against Federer. That was the one, right? Is that the same year or was that a different year? Yeah, yeah. That, that was in the quarters. And then his next yeah. match was 26-24 against Isner. Oh that was um what you were talking about falling asleep. Um, I was so I didn't watch this one, but I pulled up the live score. And so I went to bed when it was entering a fifth set. I wake up in the middle of the night and it's 13-11. And then and I'm just like, what is happening? This has to be a dream. And then I went back to bed and it's 26-24. I'm like, oh my God. Like I was um I actually didn't want the rule to get changed, but after that one, I was like, okay, like I not sure I agree with it, but I get it. Like, go ahead. <laughs> I still don't understand why the First, why 12 all? Just I, I think because it's another set. But it make it to best of 10. Why would you put a tiebreaker to Yeah, that at, that is really irritating. When like, Djokovic um, won, it was so anticlimactic. It was it was never a contest. I didn't even think it was over. I was like, oh, really? I remember thinking that, oh, good, he got to seven. Oh, wait, it's over? <laughs> I think it ended? It, it, it was kind of like um, I don't know if you're a soccer guy or not, but I, I was explaining this to somebody the other day about how, because the classic American thing, railing about penalty kicks, and I'm like, well, they exist for a reason because there's yeah. really no other way to determine yeah. a winner. Well, do you want to see another half hour of like scoreless play? I mean, no, because they're dead. In a sense, exactly. It's inhuman to make them play more. I, I, I'm opposed to even extra time. I don't like it. I think it's people do this in like their complete disdain of professional athletes. Like, do you know how much these guys run? Like, aside from the goalkeeper, everybody's running like 10Ks. Yeah. Just, they don't need to run more. It's not going to happen. Just have them kick the penalty kicks. So I was telling the, whoever this was <clears throat> that in the past, uh, UEFA actually for the Euros has tried doing something different. And they did extra time with uh, the golden goal, which was if you scored a goal, game over. Uh, right, like uh, first people thought, like American football with the touchdown. Exactly. Uh, so there was no, you know, someone scores the end, and it ended up happening in the Euro final, I think, and it sucked. <laughs> no one liked it. It was terrible. So then they quickly got rid of it, and then they put a silver goal, which meant that if you someone scored, you know how they played two extra times. Yeah. If, they, if you scored at the end of the first extra time you would play the rest of the extra time, but then you wouldn't play the second. Extra I see. Time. I, I think that's a pretty good compromise. Well, they that kind of sucked too. So no one liked <laughs> okay. that either. So they keep playing extra time for no reason. And when you just should go to penalty kicks. Uh, and someone, oh, this is friends of ours that don't really watch much soccer. And I was trying to explain to them because they were saying, no, penalty kicks are so easy. I was like, no, they're not. There's a reason why most penalty shootouts don't go past the five because... It's really hard. It's rare when they go past five. It's super rare. Yeah, it's like uh, tie breaks going past uh, six all. Like hardly ever happens. Like yeah, it's, it's tough to take care of yourself. Yeah, and then you see something that is like sixteen, fourteen. Oh wow, that was a crazy one. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Tiebreakers exist for the same reason. Yeah, it's a way to end something. And I remember having this argument on Twitter. Things have to end. We have to end something because otherwise it's just going to keep going. And yeah. and it doesn't work because if it's early in the tournament, then 
yeah, they play this epic match, but that person is dead. So you you sacrifice the next match as well. Yeah. Just let it end and then give that person a chance to recover so he can move on. So that's been always my my thing. My preferred tiebreak, I think, would be a 10-all to 10. Okay. It has to be a big tiebreaker. Like it, yeah. it should be 1-7. The US Open one I don't like. Like I'm glad that no no final has really gone to the to the tiebreaker. Except for that a, uh that 2021, which was god awful on all fronts. Oh, that was a tiebreaker, right? Yeah. I I I think I jumped in at the end to watch that. I was like, I was not gonna watch that. And everyone said this was this has been atrocious. Yeah. I'm not gonna do <laughs> and this. then and then Tennis Channel said it was uh the second best match of the year. Oh my god, what a year! Yeah. <laughs> no, it was no. See, and I, if I had been a changeover, I'd been doing a stupid live live uh, analysis. Live analysis. Yeah. <laughs> live analysis of the horrific four-hour match and oh the feeling after one of those was so bad i mean i would just be hating everything getting hating the sport hating the players hating myself <laughs> hating writings before be done with it. so no life, I, life is life is way better yeah. these days just you know casually popping off if i think of something i just put it on twitter yeah some people see it some people don't who cares that i don't that's basically my my thing, and sometimes you know, people come up and and make a make some good points. Sometimes they make bad points. Sometimes some weird stuff happens. I don't know if you saw, but like this random person, I don't know who the heck they are. They tweeted at me in my replies. <clears throat> what I first saw, what what he did was, or she, I don't know, so he or she. The, to my order, my initial tweet about the Federer comment at the Australian Open thing mm-hmm. was uh, Federer is not a nice person, whatever, a threat. And I was like, okay. Oh, God. So they're replying to me in, in, to this. And they're, they do a threat in my replies. Mm-hmm. And I kid you not, it's a 30 tweet thread. Uh-huh. And I, I'm reading it and I'm like, this looks like a piece, but I'm too lazy to see if this is actually a piece. Mm-hmm. And some excited Djokovic fan was like, hey, can I post it as on my blog? I'll give you a credit and everything. And then he comes back and is like, wait, this is a piece from like Murray's World, some <laughs> Murray website <laughs> that this random person had plucked and cut and pasted in my tweets. I don't, I don't understand why anybody would do that. <laughs> I mean, I, I respect the effort, but that's about all I can say for it. It's a lot of effort to just... Yeah. And then the guy re- or the person responds saying... Oh, I didn't want. It was by this person on. Yeah, I know it's by somebody else. I didn't want them to get grief after so long. It's like, well, first of all, they don't need to get grief if you didn't, you don't tag them. Yeah. Maybe they're not even on social media. Right. Maybe they're not even on Twitter. Just. But sometimes you know the internet has some weird places, and this would happen to Changeover too, where sometimes one of my pieces or. Some, one of our pieces would get like this random hit of, uh, of traffic and we're kind of messaging each other and like what the heck and we you know go through the analytics and try to see where it's coming from and it was on some weird forum that someone linked and all of a sudden that's where the traffic comes from yeah and it, it was not even like a new thing 
because it'd be like why is everyone looking at this thing from two years ago right and that's where they were and you yeah you never know i used to love looking at the analytics because i like looking at that kind of thing mm-hmm. and but sometimes it would be so random that and that's why you probably saw in one of my tweets one of my articles was that series that honestly i just did it to laugh at myself uh was the just looking for search terms oh my god those were hysterical uh, and, and it's, it's all like rough and all but or like um, <laughs> or like why novak Djokovic, average player oh my god those yeah, this cracked me up those are great but see that's the kind of thing that you know we got a chance to do and and yeah couldn't do that for rolling stone i guess can do that for anybody yeah you could probably do it for your sub stack but you know right like a changeover of music best songs of 2012 yeah. who the heck cares but i mean that, that's how we approached it it was just our sandbox who just got to do whatever you wanted i mean obviously no one liked this no one cared um that's so funny i wrote about a concert that i went to like a sufian stevens concert like <laughs> that's so funny I I, uh, I honestly thought that stuff was great. Like the piece you um wrote about Buenos Aires was was really really good, even though like like I've never been there. Uh, have you which do one? you remember that one? It was um like oh. you always go back to Buenos Aires. Ah, uh, that's probably the no. Where, where did I write that? I think it's it, it's like somewhere in the middle of the pages. You're gonna have to flick. It might be like page thirteen. Killing it live. Why am I doing this? That's so funny. Uh, I mean, you know, you would say that this is completely indulgent. Yeah, it was completely self-indulgent. I did whatever I wanted because I could. <laughs> I, I mean, our, it's awesome. Like people, it was our it. site. Yeah, yeah. There were people who actually liked it. I, I got to know some people through this too. Now, what is it? Is I mean, it's it's still my favorite, my favorite uh, city in the world. Oh, here it is. Personal reflection. Hell, that's a photo of my mom. Yeah. I gave copyright to my sister. Yeah, she took that photo. Ah, Fue Buena. That's the other site that I remember going to. Then, funny story, because the guy, that was also an independent blog. Because those were the inspirations, too. You got the, the, the sites, and then you got the blogs. And there were very few, very few good ones. It's like, you know, Hannah... Hannah's was great. Courtney's was freaking hilarious. Uh, I think she still has it up. And uh, in Spanish, fue buena. This guy, this guy from Argentina, he was very good. And he ends up being, he ended up being hired by the Porto to be his first guy. So he also moved up, and he kind of that's great. He gave that that's it's still going. Um, what he did was he kind of passed it on because that side had a pretty good. Uh, community too that is i rarely i don't think i barely ever posted there um but they had a good community and i think he just gave it to like some old-time commenters and they ran with it yeah because i think i might have written about one of my biggest regrets that yeah putting a map of where i lived and where the tournament is and i never went (laughs) (laughs) never went not once i think so my my sister ended up living in the same apartment as me. I completely forgot about this. And uh, my dad went to visit her long after I left. And he ended up going to the tournament. I did not. 
never went never even passed by the by the freaking place mm-hmm. that's funny i see the comments and in the comments i see people that i still interact with on twitter see here's here's maze that israeli person i told you about that we started on tennis it's so funny marie j we still get in touch she sent me stuff for my kid like clothes for my kid she that's a, amazing a spaniard who lives in france <laughs> my mom <laughs> she's hilarious uh yeah that's even someone like we're talking about the changeover this guy called steve who's a Djokovic fan and we have also kind of gone back and forth for a long time oh yeah he posted those uh the thread of the Djokovic presser in like 2007 a couple of days ago right yes nice guy and yeah we've been going back and forth for a while and he said and i don't remember this because you know this was so long ago that he would comment on the tennis on the changeover yeah we were we were very i mean at the end of the day i'm still proud of what we did and it was cool to see the reaction um you know it was it was the thing that i think that tennis fans needed or not needed or wanted there was a people wanted more and they got it. i mean for a little bit but it's very difficult to do this i mean as you know you have your own your own site it's a grind i i mean i think w- what you guys did i'm not close to that level of um consistency or quality but like I, but I'm also, still so we were much older than it. you though in 2013 2012 i was 29 and i was the oldest but not by much I mean, yeah, but adults have like busy lives and stuff, and I'm yes in my teens. So yes, no, you're. But I mean, you're kind of like how I was in Argentina. Just I had time, and I I had a passion for it, so I just dove in head first, and whatever happens, happens. Just so who's in? You're at Newport, right? Uh, I I was for uh, Monday and Tuesday. That was um, since we were in the area. I w- I thought I'd apply for a credential and I got it, but I was only there for the two days. I can still do um, Zoom press conferences though, so I got to do uh, <laughs> Bublik and uh, Anderson today, which is pretty great. Who one of them beat Sock? Right, Anderson beat Sock. Yeah, yeah, that was a tight one. Oh God, Sock. The ATP when I was with Rolling Stone, the ATP tried to push Sock so much on me. And I did not want to do it. They were relentless. And I mean, the, the, funny the labor cuff just started a little too late, I guess. Uh, sorry, oh, go ahead. The, yeah, the, they were relentless pushing Sock, trying to get Sock on, on Rolling Stone. I was like, nope, nope. And they did, actually. They, so they succeeded. I remember look, a couple of years later, after I stopped for Rolling Stone, they got Jack Sock on <laughs> Rolling Stone. Yeah. Writing would have been much worse, though. Oh, I saw Sock won the tournament. And that's the thing with Sock. I saw him win the Houston tournament, and I still didn't think he was that good. I still don't think he's good. Like he, the most overhyped, over-publicized forehand in history. And yeah, I saw I'm, it with my own eyes. I was there. I, I think the only thing it has going for it is like it spins more than anyone else's, right? But it's not it's not like an adult forehand. It's not like he can do anything with it if he has like a split second of time. It's just no, it just he loops. Hits, he hits it short. It's loopy. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's 
I don't know. That was hilarious. Yeah. So who's doing uh, media in Newport? Uh, it was basically no one, which was awesome. It was Blair. um someone from Blair's in. You didn't meet Blair. Blair's in Newport. Yeah, she um. So I honestly wasn't brave enough to talk to her because she was doing like all the on-court interviews and she was like working yes. for the tournament and like talking about the Hall of Fame. So she was like everywhere on their social media, and um I walked well, past her twice. Her yeah, and um. And that was before I sort of got settled there, so I was too nervous to say anything. Once I settled in, I would have been okay. But um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, well, I guess well, you're also much younger than us because I think Blair and I are contemporaries. Maybe we might be like a few years apart. But when I met her, she was actually just writing some pieces for a crazy play, crazy site, uh, Tennis Now. They're, they're still going. Right. It's yeah. like the they're. I think it's owned by the guy who does Tennis Express. One of those. Whatever. She was working for him. Then the next time I went to, I did the the Houston tournament was a few years later. Blair was working for the ATP. And now Blair actually works for the tournament and does like videos and, and stuff. And it's been really cool. She's she's so nice. You should have talked to her. She's beyond. I, I should have. Yeah. Actually, you should have told me, and I could have. I could have made the connection. Blair's super nice. Blair's a, a good person to know in, in tennis. Um, even these past few years, I I haven't. Co- I, I don't intend on covering the Houston tournament anymore. But uh, every year I do go and say hi because I, I like to see Pete and. Um, Whoever he works with is always nice. I, I don't know who he has now because the person he had before who did this, who was the. No, Taylor was not there. I think the first year Pete was by himself, which is crazy. Second year, Pete actually had somebody there. Um, she was super nice. Taylor, I think she works with the PGA now. Um, yeah, I think it's. It, I think it's cool that you get a chance to do that, get a sense of what a 250 is. That one's a weird 250 because it's like the Hall of Fame, but it is, yeah. Very um, strange place. I I popped in there for like a few minutes and I was thinking, like, oh, whenever I have downtime, like I'm going to go back. But I was either always watching a match or always writing for like the rest of the two days. So I just like never went back uh, after that first bit. The best part about, and that's what I don't understand about some people who do. Um, tennis coverage. Mm-hmm. The best part about covering a tennis tournament for me was very obvious: just going to watch the matches. Yeah, I mean, w- when you brought up Karlovich's serve earlier, I mean, I'll say first of all, I hate to watch like serve battles on TV, but like when you're there, like it's something completely different. Like, but mm-hmm. you just have to be there to see it, and and it becomes like completely remarkable. And you can like take photos and watch the angles and the way like their arms move. It's yeah, it's a different experience and. I just didn't understand so many people who go to tournaments to cover tournaments and then all they do is sit in the press room. Like that just seems like a waste. Yeah. And oh, and two fifties are great for this, I think, or hopefully. I don't know if they're all different. But Houston was awesome because as press, you have to sit anywhere. Mm-hmm. They don't have a press box. So you got to sit in the expensive seats. That's awesome. The um, only the only time they gave you a ticket was for the final. That's the only time that there was there wasn't really a 
I mean, there was a little press area where they gave us tickets to, but mm-hmm. throughout the tournament, you could just sit wherever. So obviously, you could go sit at the the best place to watch tennis, which is behind. And you would see so many things and hear so many things and just get a sense of what people do. Yeah. So yeah, yeah sitting in a depressing... I would just go to the press room between matches. Yeah, that, and, that, and, that's and what if I somebody Smart. That's that's a way to learn. And not to say never be in the press room. And yes, if there's nice people try to talk, not everybody's nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like at Houston here, they had this... He probably still does it. I mean, they haven't held the tournament the past two years, but he'll he'll be there next time if he hasn't retired yet. This dude from the Houston Chronicle who was extremely unpleasant. Like, I would say he's not welcoming, except that it would imply that he's, I mean, he's not welcoming at all. He doesn't give a crap about you or anybody, really. Um, the tournament, and, and he knows because it's a Houston Chronicle and because this unique situation of what the Houston event means, because people outside of Houston see it as, oh, the Houston 250. But in Houston, it has a specific connotation because it's in one of the oldest, most traditionally rich neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And it's a tournament that even though it didn't, the ATP version moved there relatively recently, it's a tournament that has always existed. It's a very lo- has a long, long history, just not always as an ATP event. It would be kind of an invitational situation right um so those people like tennis and for them it's not only about the tennis i would say it's half and half or even more so about the social event of that community getting together and you know it's their thing Mm -hmm. so because it's a houston because the chronicle is the biggest newspaper that guy knows that he owns the tournament. So he would never wait if anybody else has had a question on the presser. Oh, he would that's... always start every presser. It was his presser. That's, I knew that, that I that's couldn't messed ask anything. Up, though. Oh, it's terrible. But I mean, it's, those are the things that you run into. That's, uh, that's, uh, I don't think he ever said anything to me. I was there for two years. He, I don't think he and I ever interacted. Um, and we knew that he had to ask the, the first questions and no, it was an un, unspoken rule and that he, it's not like he asked to ask a question. He would, the player would sit down, everyone would sit down, first moment of silence, he would start. Oh, man. And the best was, <laughs> best or worst, he would <laughs> get up, uh, he would finish, he would get whatever he wanted. And then, then would he just, he just leave? Oh, come yeah. on. He would just get up and go, go write whatever it is he was going to write and, uh, and that was it. If uh, I were confident enough, I'd have cut him off just for a laugh. Uh, no, we were just, we would find it so funny with some of the other people. They're just like, okay, whatever, man. Just, you, do, you do you. Yeah. And oh, thankfully, we weren't interested in the same things. Like, right. So that was, uh, that was, I still remember that guy. Just what a strange person. <laughs> There are some people like that. Some people won't give you the, the time of day. And then there's people like Pete Holterman who are lovely. And uh, yeah. ATP people were always very nice. Um, 
I, I got so lucky at Newport. It was um so like the media tickets, probably the biggest bump in the road the road for me. It was like the media tickets were diagonal to the court. They were court level. And there was like an ad in front of you at the bottom of the fence that was like not see-through. So it was like impossible to tell anything that was going on. And so after about five minutes of that, I went to the media director and I was like, is there an unwritten rule that you can't take an empty seat? Because like half the stands in front of the court are empty. And she's like, um, well, it's unwritten, but it's not written. And that means you can do it. And I'm like, well, awesome. And so I like double check with the usher. And then I just sit in like this empty block of a hundred seats in like the best section. Um, and yeah, like the days I was there, they were completely empty, which was awesome. Yes. And um, and at the same time, I, I saw like the cameraman up there with a TV angle and there's just no one around there, him. And I was like, you know, what? I should like interview a cameraman. So I did that on like the, the second day I was there. Um, and so like that ended up working great. Um, That's for cool. Me. I actually nice. wish I had done more of that. I did. I remember Pete, I think back of this moment, like Pete was trying to mentor me and, and I did not follow the lead, but he was like, <laughs> um, I think it was a day that there was a rain delay and the weather changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And he, he was like, let me show you something. And he took me where the stringers were and everybody was getting their strings changed because the conditions had changed. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Barely wrote about it. But I think Peter was being like, oh, you can write about this stuff. Pete's great. So who was the media director there? Uh, her name was Anne-Marie McLaughlin. I don't know, who's the ATP person there? Um, Josh Ray, Joshua Ray. I don't know. He he was he was great. He would be like, um, you know, if you have a request, email me, um, and I'll try to make it happen. And every every time it happened, and since this was my first one, I was thinking, you know, I'll be lucky to talk to one player. And then first day talked to three players. Second day talked to three more players. It was it was crazy. Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds like a great experience, man. And you know what? I think I'm gonna ask my wife's been like. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I, I should have said at the beginning, I will talk for however long you want to talk, but yeah, you've well, been more you than know. generous with your time. No, it's it's been great, man. I always enjoy talking to talking talking about these things. I hadn't talked about a lot of things a lot of these things in a while. I'd forgotten a lot. Yeah. But, and and I mean I made it through this whole time without saying this, but um like what what you wrote about is like my ideal. So like in in that sense, you were sort you were sort of like my idol. And before this, I was I was more nervous for this than I was to talk to the players uh, at Newport. So so thank you for making this so easy. And th- this was really really great. So thank you. No man, um, you know, pleasure's mine. It's weird to receive compliments about stuff that I wrote so long ago, and you know I haven't done it in a long time. Um, I had completely forgotten about this when I was ISP. Like, I don't even know what I read about, what I wrote about. Um, I think, you know, keep it up because I don't know that I was ever, I never went up to anybody. And I think in this business, it's good to, like, sadly, I don't have a whole lot of connections, but (laughs) it's good to know people and not in a kind of sleazy networking way, but I kind of wish though that I had reached out like you have reached out to me, like even to this day, I've, it's kind of ridiculous, but I used to really get along with uh, Steve Tickner and we, I don't think we've interacted in over 10 years. And 
you know, nothing's stopping me from saying, hey, Steve, you're still doing amazing. Yeah. What's up with your life? <laughs> and I have not, haven't done it. And I don't know why I don't do it. Yeah. But. Well, so, hey, if, if you go through with it, I'll feel less guilty about taking three <laughs> hours of your time. No, man. It's been great. I've always enjoyed doing the, when we used to have our podcast, uh, we would go long, obviously. Yeah. It's too bad that those are long. I actually think you'd enjoy, I don't know, the, the original changeover ones a little bit. They were they were good, but I think the ones you'd enjoy more are the ones we used to do with uh with Brody, the Mind the Racket podcast, because we used to do nerdcasts and we'd like, talk about random, crazy stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually, I I actually went on a dig for those when I was going through the site, and I was like, oh my god, changeover podcast! I can hear these people talk. Um, that they're not off anymore. I actually messaged Brody a while ago and asked if he still had them anywhere. Um, but yeah, I know, they're probably dead. I don't know what he's up to, but yeah, those were, those were fun. But anyway, my man, just keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Great. Just keep doing it. Keep grinding. If this is what you want to do. Yeah. If you want to do something else, that's fine. Oh, do whatever. Th- thank you so much, Juan Jose. Really appreciate it. No pressure. And, you, and, you know and, a lot. You, you know more than a lot of people that have jobs. So yeah, I know, mean, be- just, just came at the cost of a, uh, focusing in high school but it's all good no it was i i didn't make it through that so yeah life is long you won't regret following your passions like i don't regret the change of i regret some stuff that i did and i would do maybe differently so i would have done it for longer or doing it differently so that i would have been source of income but i don't regret doing it i thought it was you know you can look back and be like oh i did that and yeah. you know, randomly, someone like you comes up later and is like, "Oh, this, you know, moved you in in some way." So that's the lesson. Yeah, do what you feel like you want to do. All right. So keep I, doing it. I will. Thank th- thank you so much for the advice, and you are welcome back on here anytime. I will undoubtedly ask again in the future um <laughs> whenever i'm i time i for now i have time awesome. uh, and i it as you know i do watch the slams <laughs> all right well in that case i will look forward to the u.s open so oh and take care keep doing it you too thank you so much have a good one bye man 